VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Thursday, April the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's the producer. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So if you're in and around town, you know that we've got that classic towny spring weather with the rain, the drizzle, and the fog. And apparently, this system is going to hang over our heads for the next 7 to 10 days, so... You know the deal, but that's we're not here for the weather, are we? Okay, so it's Volunteer Week. Happy Volunteer Week to you. Should have probably been doing this every day this week, but if you'd like to highlight a volunteer or an organization where you live, people who are people or groups that are doing great things, let's give them a shout-out here live on the air today and or tomorrow. So let's get it going. Let's go to the roadways. A little bit of good news. So the prices of fuels are down right across the board with the exception of propane. Now, not majorly down, but down. Gasoline down three cents a liter, okay. Diesel down seven cents a liter on the island, down about 10 cents in Labrador, Lab West of Churchill Falls. Furnace oil is down four cents. Stove oil is down two and a half cents. So, little bit of relief, not huge, but there you go. And on the road, so the deadline is approaching to remove your studded tires. One of the workers here in this building, I just happened to be walking across the parking lot while they arrived this morning, and it's a very distinct sound when you've got the studs on in the, I guess, the dry pavement. Well, not dry, but no snow or ice on it. So the deadline is Sunday, April the 30th, so you got about a week and a half. But sometimes it's hard to get an appointment to get the tires shifted from your winters into your all seasons, so that's coming up. And there's always going to be a debate. You know, some people swear by it, and so be it. If you like the studded tires, then go for it. But there is a debate about how effective they are given the conditions where you live and drive. There's also conversations that persist about the impact of studded tires on the pavement. But if you want to take that on, you can do it. And sticking with the motoring for a second, it was today in 1890, or pardon me, 1887, the world's first motor race. So it was Georges Bouton and his co-pilot, Jules Albert de Dion. They won in a, a steam-powered quadricycle. It was organized by a French newspaper called Le Velocipede. So first road race ever. And, of course, nothing but racing going around around here. Also, semi-race broke picks. Boy, I had to look at the one that's grounded up by Fairland. Pretty majestic stuff. So there's somewhere between 200 and 270 icebergs around the province. We take it for granted. But you see the amazement in the eyes of the tourists who've never seen the like. Whether it be an iceberg, a whale, a puffin, or whatever the case may be. So there you go. So the Growlers. So had a great regular season, but ended up having to start the playoffs on the road. 5-3 loss last night in Adirondack. So not the start they wanted, but they'll turn it around. And for folks watching the Canadian teams fighting for the Stanley Cup, the Oilers get back in their series, even it up at one apiece with a 4-2 win over the Kings last night. And for Leafs fans... They will be waiting with bated breath for the game tonight. Now, I mean, it's only game two of round one, but it does really feel like a pretty much a must-win for the Leafs. If they lose two at home and go to Tampa Bay, then, boy, they are potentially in trouble. But hard to call it do or die, but you know what I mean. All right, this is a great story. Come from Lewisport. So the Lewisport Stadium, in the first sentence of the news story, says the Lewisport Stadium is a second home to Mike Austin. Mike Austin is a Special Olympian. He's won provincial and national titles at track and in snowshoeing. 
So he never misses an event at the rink. He's in there for the hockey games and the figure skating, whatever else is going on, cheering on the athletes, which is very much the spirit of Special Olympians across the country. And because of the way he conducts himself and the positive spirit he brings to the rink, and the fact he's there all the time, they've now renamed the Lewisport Arena the Mike Austin Arena. Pretty great story. So the family knew about it, uh, but they kept it a secret from Mike, so you can only imagine how overwhelmed he must have been. And the parents are very proud. Of course they are. So he, here's uh, from his uh, father, Norm. We just stood there with tears in our eyes and our mouths open. It was almost like we were dreaming, said Father Norm Austin. I'm very, very proud, and so you should be. So great stuff. Congratulations to the entire Austin family. But, you know, spending time in the rink, something I'm quite familiar with, but that is really a, a wonderful story this morning to get it going. Okay. So there was... A bunch of uncertainty about the schools that were owned by the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation. That, of course, goes all the way back to the old denominational system. So the thought was maybe they'll have to be sold in an effort to come up with the almost $50 million required for compensation of upwards of 150 victims of abuse at Mount Cashel. So there's been a tentative agreement struck. Okay. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 schools on the Avalon and Buren Peninsula, some of pretty notable schools, O'Donnell and Holy Heart and Gonzaga and others. So they've struck a deal. Now, still lots of work to be done to finalize this, but the price tag is at $13 million. You know, when you talk about the property, the prime real estate and the buildings, it seems like a relatively low number, but they agreed upon it, so off they go. There's still plenty of work to be done. Even if they come up with problems with boundaries and surveys that maybe haven't been done dating back over 150 years, some of these properties. So there's still some, I would imagine, very comprehensive paperwork that has to be settled before 32 real estate transactions have been finalized. But inside the deal, there is indeed a dispute resolution mechanism. So they should be able to get this done. I'm sure it's not going to be uh, uncomplicated, but here it goes. So a couple of questions. My understanding has long been that inside the Schools Act, those properties were protected from any type of transaction. No one begrudges the uh, victims at Mount Cashel their compensation, but I always understood that the Schools Act said as long as these buildings were being used for educational purposes, they would remain just the way they were prior to these court proceedings. But apparently, they gave some consideration and mention of the Schools Act when they came up with this final negotiated price of $13 million. So that puts them somewhere in the neighborhood of $40-plus million uh, on the way to 50. You know, the sale of the churches and the rectories of the parish halls and all the vacant land, protection, of course, for cemeteries and the like. But I think it's still galling, certainly for the parishioners of the churches that have been sold, that the Vatican has been just been able to sit there and watch all of this unraveling of so many people's uh, spiritual home as a church and the rectories and parish halls that have been cornerstones in communities. So anyway, the school's issue has been settled as of now. All right, sticking with schools. Yesterday, there was a fifth arrest uh, regarding the attack at PWC, Prince of Wales Collegiate. So this one is a 17-year-old, and of course the charges are uber serious. Attempted murder, aggravated assault, assault with a weapon, and of course breaching the conditions of an existing youth sentence. So the young fella presented uh, from the youth detention center yesterday, and there was a list read of the 55 people he's not able to have contact with, which includes witnesses to the attack, his co-accused, the victim, and the family. 
So we all know this was a very serious beating. The victim was bloodied, badly injured, hospitalized as a result. So there's only one person who's uh, 18 plus. So we know that person's name is uh, Tyler Greening. But the big questions will remain, of course, is a shock to the system for the students in that school, and I would imagine a shock to the system for students in other schools, that it may indeed come to roost where they go to school. So we know that there was the presence of commissioners in the parking lot and playground area at PwC immediately afterwards. But what has the district, or I guess the Department of Education at this time, what have they done to talk about safety outside the walls of the school? Is there anything else that's coming? Anything else in the works? You know, because we can't forget this. It can't be just a one-off issue where we'll see what the criminal cases look like and whatever sentences will be brought to bear if they're found guilty. But a fifth, atta- fifth arrest has been made in that particular attack, which was unbelievable. Anyway, also staying with schools. You know, I bring this forward every now and then. Certainly there's got to be families of uh, K-12 students out there listening to the program this morning just about how we use tech in schools, whether it be our cell phones or tablets or, yes, artificial intelligence. And then it brings me on to, curiously, a couple of days ago, this, I believe it was a lady, sent me an email saying we should be talking about how we navigate screen time with our children. That's a tricky one, boy. You know, I'm sure many parents really do struggle with it because, not as a criticism, but our youth are pretty hooked to their screens. I mean, I'm not that very, I'm not very good at it either. I should lay down my phone more often, but they really are hooked. And so she said, why don't we talk about that and recommended this documentary. Oh, I had it right in front of me. Yeah, there we go. Recommended a documentary that was brought forward by the nature things called Kids and Screens. And then lo and behold, I read a news story today about exactly that. So many parents, and I suppose we did a bit of this too, use screen time as a negotiating tool, right? Use it as a, uh, a bonus and or a punishment. If you clean up your room, we'll give you a little bit extra screen time. If you don't do this, or if you do this, you're bad in school, or whatever the case may be, you don't get your homework done, then we're taking away your screen time, which, of course, just makes screen time the be-all and end-all. And there's lots of potential negative issues associated with being on your screen far too long, especially just before bedtime. So if you want to talk about how you've navigated that in your home, because it's not easy. You know, it can be really difficult to encourage them to eat their vegetables and or to put down their screen or clean up their room or whatever. And there's no textbook about how to be a parent. But that whole conversation about the screen I find to be extremely interesting. And if you want to bring it forward this morning, we can do it. All right. So day two of the Public Sector Alliance of Canada strike. 155,000 of them are on strike. Of course, many are deemed essential, so they're still at work. So that's some 24,000-ish crossing the picket line each and every day, which I'm sure is uncomfortable. Again, I, well, I did drive by the picket line over at the tax center. Huge crowd. It looked like there was somewhere in the neighborhood of at least 100 people picketing there. We're told there's some 5,900 members of PSAC in this province, 18 picket lines on the island, one in Labrador. There's going to be interruptions in services, of course. Service Canada, Global Affairs Canada, Veterans Affairs, Indigenous Services, and yes, at CRA. There was some thought that maybe they extend the tax filing deadline. That's not happening. You've got to have your taxes done and submitted by the end of the month. You're probably going to be waiting a fairly long time for your tax return if there's no settlement to this strike. So the big concern that I'm hearing repeatedly is for people that rely on whatever checks coming from the government. Notably, the child tax benefit, and then, of course, old age security, the CPP, 
guaranteed income supplement, we're told that those checks will flow as per normal, regardless of the status of this particular strike. So if you want to bring forward your thoughts, I mean, this is not to be down in the mouth about public sector workers. It's enshrined in legislation that they can do this. If they can't arrive at a, a collective bargaining agreement with their employer, then strike is an option, and they've chosen it. So it really does seem to be more about wages than almost anything else. They do say they want to see remote work enshrined in the uh, deal whenever that gets struck. So out there on day number two. Okay. I've been trying to think about the whole issue regarding not only the price and the price-setting panel for snow crab, and we all know the story, right? $2 a pound, not good enough for the harvesters, they're not going out. But then there's a willingness by the premier to speak with the union about the possibility of shipping the crab to other provinces. Okay. I just wonder what the price would need to be somewhere else to justify the transportation costs to get the snow crab from here to there. And I'm not so sure they're getting a whole lot more in other parts of the country, maybe up in the neighborhood of 3 bucks. So between 2 20 and $3, of course, a fair chunk of change when you talk about thousands of pounds of crab. But how do we strike the balance? Because we do indeed need to have a... Uh, a vibrant processing sector, and it does, you know, to me, scream once again that it's so difficult for an entity like the FFAW to represent the harvesters, and yes, some of their members are working in those plants. So how this is going to unfold? So where are the actual benefits? I would imagine if there's more profit available, that's a benefit, but where are the risks? Because I'm not so sure that's been part of the conversation about what the downside is here for the processing sector in particular. Anyway, and there was uh, testimony and recommendations coming from the Parliamentary Committee on Fisheries and Oceans saying that the government should relax some of their controls and issues regarding fishing in areas where North Atlantic right whales have been seen. The biggest one for people here is in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But the issue right here provincially is that very few North Atlantic right whales, and of course there's only some 300, 350 North Atlantic right whales still out there, there hasn't been any spotted in our water so far this year. But it has an implication on the type of gear that can be used. It also has an implication with how the seafood will be labeled. So it's been far and wide. There's never been a, an entanglement of a right whale in our waters. But that recommendation, the government has 120 days to act on it if they choose to do so. But anyway, that's no more fisheries news. All right, regional cooperation. This is not really breaking news. It was announced sometime in 2021, I believe, the potential for cooperation between Paradise CBS St. John's and Mount Pearl. Now, apparently, right up until the 11th hour, Mount Pearl was at the table, but they chose to opt out in signing on to what they're calling the creation of a regional economic development agency. You know, the thought is that they, that type of collaboration and focusing in on whether it be ocean technology, attracting businesses, foreign investment, and of course nurturing what they call the municipal municipalities startup sector. It sounds like it makes sense to me. Mount Pearl says they're just going to go it alone. They already have a plan in place so they're going to they think it's better to utilize their own staff and finances inside what's best for Mount Pearl and maybe it down, somewhere down the road might join forces with the other three communities. But at this moment of time, it's just Paradise, CBS, and St. John's. It does beg the question about where the progress is inside the Department of, of Municipal Affairs regarding regionalization. And, you know, maybe just setting the framework of baby steps where we can see, you know, this type of arrangement struck. And then see how it works. And then down the line. 
But it was all the rage. And then it made it to the department. And we really have no earthly idea on the progress towards creating these frameworks. And it, I'm sure it's complicated because what might work on the Great Northern Peninsula it might not work on the South Coast. But we haven't heard much coming from either sector, whether it be the municipalities, of which there's some 275 incorporated municipalities in the province. We haven't heard much coming from the LSDs or the local service districts either. But apparently the plan is being worked on. The status of, not sure, but this issue. And if you want to talk about the, uh, the partnership struck here. And remember, it's not that long ago that the Red Boards, Regional Economic Development Boards, were scattered around the province. Not really sure why they ever went by the wayside. But anyway, inside this arrangement, there's going to be financial and non-financial contributions or investments to the agency. There is going to be a representative of all the municipalities on a governance board, which will be in place no, lo no later than the end of this year. And here's the breakdown for the cost contribution. CBS is contributing 16.5%, Paradise providing 13.5%, and St. John's providing 70% of the investment. So I can only say as a townie, I hope that that's going to work. So the collection of the four communities, now Mount Pearl, if you're in Mount Pearl, you think that's a good or a bad thing, make sure you chime in on the program this morning. But of course, those four communities make up somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of the entire population of the province. So it's a step towards more and more collaboration. So whether you be a municipality looking for relationships with your surrounding communities or you're an LSD member and still have questions about what the upside is for you, we can tackle that here today. All right, you know me, I think that there's massive opportunities in the mining sector, especially with rare earth and critical minerals. You know why. And so Minister Parsons uh, was just in England for the annual Ocean Business Conference talking about potential for relationships between the UK and our province. We have barely scratched the surface. There is huge economic opportunities. Nothing comes without an environmental impact, but massive economic opportunities if we can ever figure this out and figure it out right. Not only more control of exploration and extraction, but more in the secondary processing side as well. Because we do a great job in hauling stuff out of the ground and sending it elsewhere. Not so great necessarily when it comes to the next stages, whether it be secondary or tertiary processing or whatever the case may be. All right, how we doing, Dave? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. Now is your opportunity to pick up the phone and get in the queue. We're coming right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, just one thing, and Alyssa set me straight, and I'm glad she did. So Holy Heart of Mary is not part of the sale. That was on the Sisters of Mercy and Presentation Sisters. They already sold that to the government. I knew that, but I misspoke when I included Holy Heart of Mary in the 32 schools that have been tentatively sold. Okay, let's begin this morning. Uh, where do you want me to start this morning, Dave? All right, I'll pick my own. Line number one. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, one of the one of the joys in in, in the early morning, you know, getting up five thirty, six o'clock, and going gardening, is listening to the, the the birds this time of the year, especially the fox sparrow. Right? It's uh, the song of the fox sparrow got got to, got, to, got to be the uh, the best we get in Newfoundland. But anyway, the last year uh, we used to get. Um, other years, I should say, we used to get uh, seven and eight pairs of uh, fox sparrows uh, around the feeder, uh, and then you'd get the, the the other different kinds of sparrows, white throated, and so on. Last year, we only had one one uh, uh, pair show up, and I thought that was uh, kind of odd. And uh, went to some other areas and. Uh, pretty well the same result nobody's singing this year we had no sparrows whatsoever turn up at the bird feeders the usual time
time from about the 10th to the 15th of April. And uh, I phoned a couple of people to check and see if this was just an, an anomaly for our area, and they reported the same thing, seeing seeing next to next to none. And I, and I visited another part of the peninsula, and the, where it's uh, great for that, nothing there at all. So I just checked this morning. I just Googled just to see what uh, if this could be backed up by uh, other places. And they said in North America, the abundance of uh, 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 songbirds is, uh, is, is drastically reduced. In fact, they're talking about uh, uh, extinction, extirpation in uh, some areas. And um, I just thought, you know, we don't notice things till they're gone necessarily, but... Uh, uh, I'd like to remind people, too, that it's not just the, the, the joy of hearing the songs in the spring. The, these birds help with pollination, seed distribution, insect control. They're a really good part of the uh, of the ecosystem. But anyway, I don't know if you want to comment, if you've heard reports on this from elsewhere or not. I have not heard reports of this from elsewhere, but when we talk about biodiversity and just how many different species are, have been uh, deemed to be vulnerable and the pathway to uh, you know use the word extinction I don't know if that's where we're headed but that is absolutely troubling whenever there's an interruption in the balance uh, of biodiversity you know for some people they don't give it a second thought but it has wide-reaching implications whether we're talking about insects or reptiles or birds or whatever you know the balance has been important for eons and it seems to be quite interrupted well, they 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 gave uh, 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 one of your callers at least won't want to hear this. The, the, the O'Keefe gentleman, one, one of the main causes they say is the warming of the climate, and they're being driven uh, further north each year. So uh, again, uh, we don't notice these things. It's like the canary in the coal mine, right? Sure, we don't notice enough. these things until it happens, and uh, it's just one more aspect of what's happening to our atmosphere. But anyway, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, biochar. You had a lady on, uh, oh, it was about a month ago or so, and I didn't get the whole thing. Uh, uh, what what exactly did she uh, mean by the biochar thing? If I remember correctly, it's uh, it's simply a way to use organic material from any waste area, agriculture, forestry. It it's pretty much like a piece of charcoal, you know. So you burn that organic material and you come up with a biochar, and apparently it's really quite helpful in the world of fertilization. Okay, so if I burn uh, grass and sticks and so on in my compost and then uh, shovel that off and uh, burn layers, that would do, do you think, the same thing? I really don't know how to answer that question. But, I mean, we've seen controlled burn long been a feature of trying to uh, improve your farming uh, farming area, your land, your soil. So, I, I mean, I don't pretend to know much about it, but I do remember, I think she said the process is called pyrolysis, pyrolysis maybe, uh, something like that? That's all I remember is biochar. Yeah. So, you know, it certainly is a uh, contamination reduction tool, and she was really quite bullish on it at the farm that they are operating, the experiments that they're doing. So, yeah. Patty, uh, one more thing I'd like to ask about would would be the, and one more comment on something else. The Terra Nova thing, did you say... Did I get this right? Five hundred million. We basically gave them as an incentive to come back to that field. The 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 deal that was struck, and as people call it, at the eleventh hour, was there was an ownership shakeup first, 
And secondly, remember that pot of money that was flying around, monies for oil companies. Not for oil company workers, but for oil companies. A couple yes. of investments went out the door for Husky, of course, Synovus uh, was part of it. I think they got $45 million in an effort to get White West Rose extension going. And $200 million government dollars in cash went to Suncor and its partners. In addition to that, there was a negotiated $300 million royalty relief afforded to Suncor and its partners. So in essence, we're in for it in the neighborhood of five hundred million. So we really are anti-oil, according to some of your uh, your, your 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 callers. That uh, I I don't know if they just say these statements robotic-like that uh, that they feel it's a, it's a party line because they're obviously uh, are right wingers, but they don't seem to uh, to have grasped uh, 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 the things that uh, both levels of government, uh, liberals in this case, have done for the oil companies. There's been oil subsidies uh, that have been to the tune of billions and billions of dollars for years and years and years, regardless of who's been at the helm of Parliament. So, I mean, I know they, they want to say it. You know, some of the arguments they make uh, surrounding, for instance, natural gas. I get that. There's huge opportunity, and natural gas will indeed be one of those quote-unquote transition fuels that uh, company, pardon me, countries will be looking for. So that argument that they make, fair enough, I would add to that, is that there's only one, there is a natural gas approval in place out in Kitimat, no work is being done. So I don't really quite get, nor do I necessarily agree with their stance on it. Now, if you listen to Stephen Giebel or you listen to the Prime Minister, they too, they do indeed talk about phasing out uh, use of fossil fuels, but in the exact same breath, at the last COP meeting, COP27 I think it was, the whole world signed on to a document committing to phasing away from fossil fuels. Canada did not sign on to it add to it we just bought a pipeline you know so yeah. there's lots of reasons so to believe that oil they're not as anti-oil as some of the rhetoric includes plus there was just a green light or a release from the uh, environmental assessment for Equinor at Beta Nord so there's lots of areas you can point to and say no they're not as anti-oil as you'd like to believe but I think if you include natural gas we maybe have missed some opportunities for utilizing natural gas uh, in this country for export and or for domestic use but they're not as anti-oil as people want want to make them so, out to be. So they make they make their, their, their billions in profits and uh, we uh, we give them uh, uh, corporate uh, welfare uh, and over fist. That's, that's, that's what I can gather from what you're saying. I'd like to make one, one last comment. Walking okay. around the different uh, communities this time of year, and I'm sure it's the same everywhere else, uh, there's a lot of roadside garbage. Now, tourist areas, and this is one, for, for councils around the province to hire a few young people for, for a few dollars uh, to, to have two or three days or a week even of, of cleaning the roadsides, have they, do they consider this, I wonder, or do they just feel it's part of the, uh, the landscape to have that stuff uh, kicking around in full view of traffic, by the way, yeah. passing by? My understanding is that there's some liability associated with hiring as opposed to organizing some volunteerism to come out and be part of the cleanups. So, like, if I hire them, and people always go back to, why not go with the chain gang, right? Prisoners, as opposed to being idle inside the walls of the penitentiary, should be out doing that type of work. I think that's different than just hiring people because then you are responsible for them and their safety, which does indeed come with a potential risky price tag. So I think that's why they don't do that. But, you know, municipalities should really be talking or uh, thinking about this out loud. I think Cornerbrook a couple of years ago did something that I thought made all the sense in the world. So they planted a couple of uh, discarded coffee cups, marked them with an X or something rather, or whatever stamp they put on them, and so you'd go out and clean up, and whatever refuse you picked up, but of course you brought to the uh, city 
Hall, I believe it was. And if you found one of these cups, you got yourself 100 bucks. So they dangled just that $100 carrot as an incentive, and apparently they had great success. So I, I'm internally embarrassed with just how dirty the place is all the time, including right here in this city. So we've got to do better. And people can just please stop telling me that it's the responsibility of the person who sold you the hamburger or sold you the coffee to clean it up because they didn't uh, sell it to you to throw on the ground they sold it to you to eat or drink you're responsible for the cup once they sell it to you so well, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll bet this if, if every council uh, took aside uh, one one day for for a cleanup i'll bet you you get volunteers in in galores probably anyway thanks patty uh, good program appreciate the time Okay, sir. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, I should take a break and get it there on time, okay? When we come back, the topic completely up to you. Grant's talking about the lack of work in and around Botwood. And then Susan Hyde from the Schizophrenia Association. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the president of Fort Amherst Healthcare. That's Mike Powell. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Oh, hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today, thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. Excited to be talking to you about our new program. Yeah, so tell us about the neighborhood, neighborhood with a capital N. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, We're here today to talk about the neighborhood at Bishop's Gardens, which will be the first um, fully publicly accessible day program, uh, which means not by referral in the province. Patty, I mean, we know that we've got one of the oldest populations in the country. We're aging rapidly, and uh, and you know some of the models of senior care that we, that have been effective in the past, not necessarily well positioned to keep up with that growing demand. Uh, not not only are we you know aging rapidly, but people are living longer and, and with more chronic illness, and that requires a higher acuity of care than what's worked in the past. So, as a province, we need to embrace new progressive ways of caring for our seniors. Uh, at Ford Amherst Healthcare, we're super focused on that, and we think that more community care, community-based care for seniors, pardon me, is a big part of that puzzle. Uh, seniors want to stay home as long as possible. Uh, home care has always been popular for that reason, but there's some shortcomings to it, right? It's hard to staff on a one-to-one basis, uh, especially in this kind of um, labor market, and that also makes quality control tricky. So what we're trying to do here is to create a bridge between home care and residential living. Um, the neighborhood of Bishops is about a 12,000 square foot space that we built in the old basketball gym at Bishops Gardens, which of course we turned into a retirement home. Uh, and it's, it's a drop-in day program for seniors. As I said, first program of its kind here in the province, not on a referral basis, anyone can use it. And the idea is that seniors who need a little bit of extra support in their day, if that's therapeutic recreation, medication management, socialization um, all of that's available in uh, in in a place where you just don't need to stay overnight the same way that you would have to in a residential facility so some of the programs that people might have in the personal care homes they live in is that what you're trying to replicate with the neighborhood absolutely so there are many things about the retirement home model that are very effective Um, the staffing model and how that gives you access to specialists like um, therapeutic rec professionals nurses um, you know uh, chefs So what we're trying to do is bundle those services in a place where people can use them on a drop-in basis, um, but really designed for people who have no desire to move out of their home yet. Uh, They just need a little bit of extra support throughout their day. So what type of uh, programs or services would be there? 
So a lot of what you would see in the retirement home, um, if that's gentle fitness, if it's cooking class, um, you know, we have live music from time to time, uh, church services, but also more clinically based things. So, um, you know, we have the strong therapeutic recreation program. Um, and then like the type of nursing services you would see in a care home as well. So it's, it's managed by a dedicated nurse. Um, we can manage medication management. Uh, we have assisted bathing for people who would like to just get in our spa and, and uh, you know, light the candles and, and have a nice soak. So it's a pretty broad variety of programming that's um, really something for folks who are independent, but also a lot of programming that's very much geared for folks that have um, sort of general frailty or, or cognitive um, impairments that, that come with age. Now, these types of uh, offerings are in other places in Canada. What does whatever research you've done or those other facilities have done show about the upside for individual seniors? So what do we know the benefits will be? Because it sounds good to be able to go and avail of nutritious meals. It sounds great to be able to go and have some uh, therapeutic uh, recreation activities. But what have we understood about what that really means, what the data shows? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, we've been studying this market since before COVID. Um, we were fortunate to spend time in lots of facilities in the United States where this is a deeply established model, as well as the, you know, sort of the, the top tier facilities here in, in Canada across the country. Um, it leads people to stay in their homes longer, Patty, right? Like, um, there's a lot of people who require support throughout the day that home care just isn't clinical enough to provide. Um, but aren't ready to make a move to a residential facility. And, you know, oftentimes those are people um, who have spouses or, or live with their kids. Um, so, you know, this, who do we serve best? I mean, uh, if you're a primary caregiver um, to your spouse, and, and that's a very difficult, challenging role, and it's burning you out, um, you know, this is a place where your partner can come a couple of days a week and have, you know, meaningful care uh, in a secure environment uh, and, and give you a little bit of autonomy to uh, have some respite and take care of your own, um, you know, well-being, because caregivers need that to be able to uh, to go the distance when it comes for when it comes to caring for somebody with with these types of illnesses. So um, we think that it helps people stay in their homes longer. We think that uh, there's a clinical acuity to what we do um, that's closer to what you get in a residential facility than what would typically be available through through home care. Um, and it really aligns deeply with a lot of the, the province's home first um, philosophy, which we applaud. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's a, a, a deep theoretical grounding here that um, it helps people stay at home longer, gives them access to um, a higher degree of clinical acuity care and, uh, and keeps you know, couples together when, when primary caregiving can be quite difficult. How much does it cost to drop in? Um, so the cost depends on the amount of care that you get, depending on if you're independent or if it's closer to like the enhanced care we would see at a retirement home. But it starts at about 28 bucks for half a day. So we've tried to keep our pricing um, as close to the home care model as possible. So for context, um, you know, that's a little bit more than, than one hour of home care. And, and in this context, you would get between three and four hours of programming. So is it open right now? Um, we are doing assessments right now. We are going to open the first week of May. Um, we're really down to putting the furniture together. Uh, the, the, the space itself is, is highly stylized as a neighborhood, which is really cool. So, you know, you walk in there and, uh, well, it doesn't look like a basketball gym anymore. 
um, there's all these little storefronts, right? So we've got a big indoor walking track. Um, we've got a, a 60s diner, which is really, really cool. Um, you know, there's a, a pub, which is kind of like a clubhouse space. Uh, we have an artist studio called the Painted Puffin. Um, so, you know, there's, it's, it's a neat space. Uh, like I said, we're just really getting the decor up and the furniture put together. However, people who are interested in this type of program um, certainly can reach out to Leslie White, who's the nurse who's managing it. Um, I might as well say her number is 709-327-7085. Uh, they could also follow us on Facebook at The Neighborhood, or they could go to visittheneighborhood.com. Um, but people who are interested should reach out. We do have an in-house assessment process just to make sure that the um, clinical needs that someone has are things that we're well-positioned to care for. And, um, you know, right now we've assessed our first 15 or 20 club members who are, are pretty excited about participating. So um, it's just a matter of reaching out, making sure that it's a good fit with the needs that you have, and uh, scheduling your first visit in May. I appreciate the time, Sorny. Mike, good luck with it. Hey, thank you so much, and uh, great show. Thanks, Mike. Stay in touch. See you, buddy. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Mike Powell is the president of Fort Amherst Health Care. That might be an attractive option for some folks uh, and or their families or their loved ones, whatever the case may be. Let us go where line number two, say good morning to the executive director at the Schizophrenia Society. That's Susan Hyde. Hi, Susan. You're on the air. Thank you so much. And I just have to start by saying I absolutely love this show. And this morning is just a great example of the range of topics and, and interests and everything else. So I just have to say that right off the top. And I tell everybody. So there you go. I appreciate that. You never know what's coming. <laughs> no, you don't. That's what I love about it. So. Awesome. What's coming from you this morning, Susan? Okay, uh, well, we're offering our Family Recovery Journey Program. We offer it at least once a year. So this is our, our, our spring-summer session starting in May 16th and June to June 13th. And we offer, um, it's going to be on Zoom so we can reach the whole province right now. And uh, so we have courses available in the morning and as well as in the evening, depending on people's availability. So the, the whole point of the program really is to... Um, engage families around the province and loved ones it could be friends it could be you know a neighbor it doesn't matter who just somebody that's that has someone with lived experience with schizophrenia or psychosis um, in their life um, and so the point of it all is how to help them build um, a better relationship um, with their loved one um, by learning more you know like a really effective communication skills and, um, it's amazing when families hear some of the more simple things like you know when you're when you want to communicate with someone who's living with schizophrenia, um, it's better not to have direct eye, eye contact. Rather, go for a walk side by side, driving a car side by side. Um, so simple things like that, we're finding out families are, are saying, wow, this is making a huge difference in, in our ways of communicating. Um, and at the Schizophrenia Society, our entire purpose is to help people living with schizophrenia and psychosis live their life to their full potential. Now, we, at this point, we're, we're getting results that two-thirds of people living with schizophrenia and psychosis um, are living a life of recovery. That is, they're living a life beyond their medication, beyond their diagnosis. They're actually having the life that they wanted, whether it was getting married or going back to school or most wanting to get a job or volunteer. So by, to, get that, to get that mission accomplished, we have to help the families and the friends support 
them in their journey. Um, so it's it's very we've one of the, the the word that comes up over and over with the families is the 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 training is intense. We don't we, we talk about suicide. We talk about alcohol and 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 um, any kind of drugs. Um, we talk about isolation. We talk about shorter lifespans if we don't get better nutrition. Um, we we're, we don't pull punches because we want to make sure that they are uh, that they have the the information that they need in order to navigate um, and help to support their person with lived experience. So I should take a breath and see if you have a question. Yet. <laughs> well, no, I think these things are important. And every time that uh, I see the word or we have conversation regarding mental illness or mental wellness or mental health, schizophrenia and psychosis always jumps out as a different feel to me. The reason why, because I think we unfortunately see it attached to, whether it be in TV or in film or just in general conversation, a distinct misunderstanding of what it means. Because far too often, I think when people hear it, they think of dangerous individuals when, you know, but that lack of understanding, it just makes things worse for the person who's been diagnosed with schizophrenia and or their loved ones or people who are trying to help them navigate this world. Mm-hmm. So how should we think about it? Because I really do yeah. think most people think that schizophrenic is a dangerous person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we, we come up against that all the time, obviously, in our work. We do a lot of public presentations and education and trainings and things like that, mostly to try to debunk the stigma. Um, it is the most stigmatized. It is the least understood. It is the le- the most feared. It's the least researched, um, least to look into medications that would improve their lives. Um, and so, so to get back to the violence part, I mean, people living with schizophrenia and psychosis are less likely to commit a crime then they're just about the same as the general population. So, and if they're going to hurt anybody, they're going to harm themselves. So we need to have like a tremendous amount of compassion and get our story straight so that we can, we can understand and we can, we can look at the word schizophrenia and we don't get all weirded out about it. I mean, I have, a, I have it on my card, my business card, in big letters, because when I came into this job, I said, this is it. We're going for hope and recovery. We're going to go for the positive. We're going to find a way to, for people to live their best life. I have people that I go to hand the card to that won't take the card. And they'll say, oh, I'll just take your number. I'm like, you can't catch it. And, you know, it's, it's, not, it is, it's not something to be feared. Where, you know, it's, it's more to be, you know, have compassion for them and, and compassion for their families and friends. And, you know, ask questions. Be interested. Call me up. I'll tell you everything you want to know about schizophrenia. And very little of it is going to talk about, you know, the media and the portrayals. And, you know, I shouldn't say media in a bad way, but, you know, media. Like, if, there's, if there is a crime committed and the person is thought to be schizophren- have schizophrenia, then that goes a, far, a long ways, right? Because it plays into the fear that we have on a cultural level. Um, so, yeah, we're just doing our best, Patty, to, to break that down and, and let people know that, no, they don't, they're not any more violent than anybody else, and if they're going to hurt anybody, they're going to harm themselves, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And then, so we do stigma stuff all the time. <laughs> well, it's important, you know. It's the lack of understanding or the misunderstandings that are perpetuated far too often just leads to this standoff. The unwillingness to know what's happening, the unwillingness to understand one diagnosis over another, what it really means, what you can do, and even just something that you've said about, you know, not a, no eye contact. I mean, mm-hmm. that could possibly be just that one tip or that one mechanism that makes things different and better for all involved. So I, I, I really 
really always feel like we have to, unfortunately, start with the whole stigma-related conversation sure. just to get down to the brass tacks of what we're trying to accomplish. And you are absolutely right. We do feel like we are the most stigmatized um, mental illness. Uh, so we have to work even harder to, to, to be visible. Um, and that's one of the family, another thing the families ask me to do all the time is say, can you be more visible? Can you talk about it in the public? Can you get on the media and let them know? And so, you know, getting the call today from Dave was just amazing because that's exactly what I've been told to do by the families. Um, yeah, so, so, so that's, that's uh, the other things we do in the, in the course is really, um, we do talk about stigma. And the most interesting thing is to see the parents look at each other and say, oh, my gosh, we're stigmatizing our children because we don't talk about them. When we go to the family reunion, we don't talk about them. You know, when we, you know, so, so all of a sudden now they're getting empowered to say, you know what, we need to talk about it. We need to be more visible. We need to be more positive and, uh, and just, you know, so that it's like bipolar or, 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 you know, um, depression, you know, it's just, it's another mental illness. And right now we need the most resources that we can get. We need the most attention we can get for a positive message to go out because imagine people, who are living with schizophrenia and they're hearing these, this, you know, this stigmatizing, you know, uh, prejudice against them. It's really hard for them to put their, you know, stick their head up and say, you know what, I'm going to go out in the world and I'm going to try to volunteer for someplace or I'm going to go back to school or, you know, so we just need to have lots of love in our heart and just be there for them. Right. So the, uh, how do I attend one of these five session zoom programs coming up, I believe beginning on the 16th of May. Correct. You can attend by, you can give me a call at triple seven, triple three, five, or you can email me at E D at S S N L dot O R G. So you can call or you can email or, or you can just Google the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland and Labrador and you can reach me through there. Um, yeah. So we have lots of openings so far. We're just announcing now and, uh, but we keep it to a sort of a smaller group just so, um, you know, everybody gets a chance to talk and everything. But to be honest, I don't let turn anybody away. So good luck with it. And thanks for making time for the show this morning. Oh, you're, you're great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Take good care. You too, my darling. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Susan Hyde. The executive director at the Schizophrenia Society. Let's take a break. When we come back, volunteer week. Love it. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Craig Dyer. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy National Volunteer Week. And the very same to you, and congratulations to you. You're the Newfoundland Labrador Soccer Association Volunteer of the Year yourself. Uh, thank you, Patty. It's it's very humbling, but uh, a lot of great people uh, help make my success uh, the community success. So I just want to give a, a quick shout out today and a sincere thanks to all those who make our communities better place to live in. As you know, we got some youth groups, we got cadets, senior groups, coaching, community events, firefighters, and the list goes on. Right. Yeah, so you've been at it for 20 years plus. And like most of us, we would have been uh, exposed to whether it be soccer, hockey, basketball, whatever, when our children started to play. But then what I really admire is the folks that stick around after their children have gone through the system. You know, because it takes a special type of commitment because it's no longer, you know, ensuring that the association that your children are playing in are, is working efficiently and things are being done and effort is being put forward. But when they leave and people stick around like yourself, that's... That's the that's the real key. I love it. Uh, and and actually, Patty, uh, I'm young in the organization. Mount Pearl Soccer Association has some great volunteers and some great leaders. Um, we have an alumni. Uh, some of these people are the founding fathers, and and I'll call them the Tim Horton 
uh, gang. They meet every Tuesday. There's anywhere from six to 12 of them. And they're still volunteering 50 years later with our organization and, and making it a better place to be. Yeah, I mean, that's another point that I think gets uh, lost sometimes in the conversation is, you know, for some organizations, they have a very youthful board and the kids are still playing and what have you. But there's lots of other charities, not-for-profits and uh, associations like yours where it's, you know, the age, the average age of the members is getting up there. So we really need to encourage younger people to get involved, regardless if your child is still playing or whatever the case may be, you know. Make an impact for the folks that did it for you when you were a player or a dancer or a singer or whatever. Get in there and do what someone else did for you when you were participating. And that is definitely the situation at Mount Pearl Soccer. Um, yeah. And today I just wanted to give a huge shout out to uh, all of our volunteers. Uh, MPSA needs about 150 to 200 volunteers annually to make our program a success. And we've been very successful. Uh, and that's great. Well, there is something about the organizations out of Mount Pearl that really does draw in the volunteers. I guess it's just a community issue, right? You know, whether it be the attendance and the volunteering for the Winter Carnival or the minor sports associations and others. You seem to be doing it right in Mount Pearl. There must be something in the water. Uh, and, and Mount Pearl is a great community to live in. And along with their staff, uh, MPSA has two staff that are working really hard to try and keep our programs going and doing a fantastic job. But there's a whole bunch of people that I'd just like to give a quick shout-out to. Sure. And, and people that you don't see. Uh, the current MPSA board is a board of eight people, and they're working day and night. We're getting ready for our summer program, which, of course, is one of our bigger uh, take-ons. And they're meeting every day. There's somebody meeting in some committee group, and the board is absolutely fantastic. They're working really hard to ensure that the, the children of Mount Pearl and joining communities have a fantastic uh, summer of soccer. Then we have uh, our coaches and our managers, and we have, this, uh, we have junior coaches. These are people that are being mentored, and they're helping out the coaches and helping out our youth. And they work year-round. Well, I should say we have many different programs. Of course, we have our summer, but our more competitive uh, teams, they're working year-round. They're giving up hours weekly uh, coaching and developing and making our players better players and better citizens. Also, we have a bunch of people that organize special events. It could be anything, Patty, from uh, taking tickets at a game to cleaning up after to uh, cooking something for, for a meal. And, of course, uh, I mentioned the alumni. Um, these gentlemen and, and ladies are absolutely fantastic. They're always there to give. So, you know, on behalf of Mount Pearl and MPSA, I just want to say thank you very much uh, for all the volunteering that you're doing and uh, keep it up. And, of course, we're always looking for more volunteers. And with our summer program starting, there's opportunities there for our club league program, which is a recreation program for eight weeks of the summer to get involved, whether it's with your child's uh, team or uh, with your grandchild's team. You know, we have some great seniors uh, that come out and, and give back to the community, and we have a bunch of youth that actually give back to the community. So, you know, the rewards always outweigh the time, right? It, it's so rewarding to give your time to somebody to make something better, whether it's skilled in soccer or a better citizen, right? You know, this is the rewards that we get from volunteering, and I encourage everybody to be a part of it. Yeah, I guess we both do it for the very similar, if not the exact same reasons. Uh, Craig, and just a quick mention here. We talked about Mount Pearl Minor Sports. Uh, we have a family relationship. Dave Williams' brother, Greg, is the president of Mount Pearl Baseball. So, anyway. Excellent. Yeah, Craig, great to have you on the show. 
Uh, just a, a one or two quick shout-outs, Patty. Sure. Uh, I just want to congratulate uh, next weekend, uh, Newfoundland Labrador Soccer Association. Uh, we'll be inducting more members into the Hall of Fame, and I just want to give a quick shout-out uh, to Martin Bath- Batherson, a longtime member of MPSA and a Hall of Famer from 2010. And I want to use your program to announce that Mount Pearl Soccer Association will be in the Senior Soccer League this year. Oh, good. Uh, we had a, we had a uh, five-year layover, but this year we will be putting a Challenge Cup team into our senior division, and we're quite happy and quite proud of it. And just to let the people in Mount Pearl and the soccer community know that on May 27th uh, will be our home opener uh, against Felians. So it's going to be a great game. We're asking our community to come out and support our teams and be a part of Mount Pearl Soccer Association. Thanks for the time, Craig. Keep up the good work. Thanks, buddy. Okay, all the best, man. Uh, bye-bye. Craig Dyer is president out at Mount Pearl Soccer and, of course, the most recent uh, winner of the Volunteer of the Year Award for Newfoundland and Labrador Soccer Association. Very quickly, folks, in uh, CBS, there's a formal announcement coming very soon about the three-hour challenge to volunteer cleanup out in that community. And if you want to bring forward the announcement that you're organizing such an event in your community, we'll help you right here on this program. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Grant, you're on the air. How you doing, sir? Not too bad. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Uh, the nicest voice in radio, Geraldine Mackey. There you go. Advise me, to, advise me to call you today, sir. Okay, right. great. What's on your mind? Uh, I tell you, I just want to put myself out there for anyone who might need some help. Uh, in terms of uh, home health care. I'm a health care worker, but I'm unemployed here in Botwood. Uh, beautiful town, most beautiful people, beautiful scenery. Uh, I called every place around here. Uh, there's just no employment for me right now. I could easily find work in Grand Falls and surrounding areas. My vehicle broke down. I can't afford to fix it. Uh, basically, I'm at the point now where I'm having to use a food bank and uh, I guess I'm pretty much stuck having to walk to the food bank, so you can imagine I can't get uh, can't get much <clears throat> help in that regard. You're a healthcare worker in what capacity? Well, I did LPN training in 2008, and I worked as an LPN for about four years. Then I decided to do a trade, and I moved to Alberta. And once I got laid off from that, I came back to Newfoundland. Probably a mistake. I, I didn't really know what was waiting for me. This is before the pandemic. So uh, it's been pretty rough. Um, uh, I guess right now I'd have to do a refresher for the LPN, but I'd still be qualified to work as PCA. So I just wanted to put my name out there and see if anybody, you know, might need some help. If I had to relocate, uh, you know, that would be fine because I think I'm probably at risk of losing my place anyway. I owe so much property taxes, and my family's been so helpful. It's it's just uh, I wouldn't know what uh what to do without him but uh, I'm kind of past the point of being able to ask uh, for any help from family so uh, that's why I'm reaching out to you today and and the listening public So Grant is moving on the table? Yes sir but the thing of it is I have father and daughter huskies that are like my like my children I guess you could say and uh, we're kind of a package deal and uh, I've been encouraged by many that I should give up my animals. And <laughs> Patty, like your show, they're probably the only thing that really got me through the past three years. I've been living off-grid, uh, running a generator provided by my older brother. 
and uh, a very important guy to me too, by the way. Helped me through a lot. And uh, I guess if someone wanted to take me on, it had to take me and my team. And uh, I'm pretty tough. I lived in a trailer for nine months, uh, months before. So I wouldn't need very fancy lodging. So if there was someone stuck somewhere around the bay who needed medical help, I had the training and I had the will. It's just they'd have to accept us as a package deal. But, uh, Patty, before I forget, you know, I've been hearing a lot of stories about people uh, being homeless, living under automobiles. I don't know what this government's trying to prove because we never had to get to that extent before. If there's anybody out there that needs a place to stay, they're more than welcome to come here. I got two bedrooms upstairs. I have a wood stove. And they don't need to be sleeping in their cars. So... Well, that might be very helpful to someone who's listening today who's in a precarious housing spot, so fair enough. So do you think that there's not an opportunity for you and your dogs to all move together to somewhere where you have access to employment and can maybe get back on track? My friend, I tell you, I'd be forever under debt if they, were, if they would take us on. I would move in a heartbeat. I don't have a cent in my name to move, to be honest with you. So that would be a bit of an issue, but the will is definitely there i mean uh, this town kind of did what it could for me because i you know i i had some opportunities but not really in my field you know so um i guess you know to answer your question i'm ready to go if someone wanted to take me on definitely well, if anyone has an opportunity they'd like to put forward, uh, please do get in touch with us. We'll put you in touch with Grant. So is there a, a time frame where you have to get back to work in healthcare before your accreditation lapses? Well, like I mentioned, uh, I went to Alberta, and I was working in the uh, pipe fitting trade for a while. Uh, hospital construction it was a great experience, but, uh, geez, while I'm on the subject, I better warn young Newfoundlanders. Um, not all that receptive of Newfoundlanders in Alberta. That you wasn't know, my experience. I lived there for uh, just about a decade, and I had a great old time in Alberta. Well, I, the, the Calgary boys, the best. But I did run into some trouble with, uh, you know, with how some job sites were handled. We had some foreign workers there that uh, that were pretty rough on a few of us, and it was pretty pretty darn challenging. And uh, the Liberal government got in. And, of course, Newfoundland had to be the first painted red. And I remember being on that job site, and I was one of 6,000 people. And our name got dragged through the mud more than once. And I didn't tell a soul I was from Newfoundland. I kept it quiet. And, uh, you know, but I'm getting sidetracked there, Patty. Yeah, no problem. And my experience, you know, was, is only my experience, not your experience. So fair, fair enough. Exactly, exactly. Oh, you know, tough times out there. God knows I hear an awful lot of stories uh, very similar, too. So if anyone has anything open, like have you looked for where there's opportunities for your discipline so that we can narrow it down to some communities and, you know, maybe you know, put the uh, the horse back in front of the, of the cart and see if you can get uh, hired on, and then we can take on the whole concept and the supports for moving? Yes, my friend. Uh, like in surrounding area, I'm sure I could have employment to – now, my vehicle broke down, but having said that, I don't have the money to fix it. And uh, now the stickers are up, and I got even more expenses. I got more parts I got to order. To get them cheap, I'd have to wait. And uh, I'm just uh, so pressed financially, I think I'm going to have to just forget that for now. And like I say, and I'm not from this area, so it's a little difficult to expect someone to... Uh, just come pick me up and take me on to a job that I can find in the surrounding area. 
But, you know, to answer your question, I'm sure I could find work, say, in Gander, Grand Falls, or what have you. Uh, but hitchhiking to work, I don't know how reliable I'm going to be, sir. Well, if anyone wants to pass on any encouragement or opportunities to you through us, we're happy to be the medium. I uh, appreciate this, Grant. I wish you good luck. Keep in touch. Yes, thanks a million, Patty, for everything you do, sir. Th- yeah. Thank you. Take care. Take care, Bill. All right, bye-bye. All right. Uh, before we get to the break, let's go to line number two. Jerry, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Morning. You sound, like you sound like you're having a good morning. So far, so good. <laughs> I'm uh, my morning's not so good, but I, I appreciate the fact that you're letting me um, uh, go ahead with this. We have um, we have a 19 year old uh, beagle. His name is Nico, and he's missing since April 13th. Oh my! Um, he's an old dog, and uh, he's um, he gets somewhat confused. But we've searched everywhere so far. We've been searching since last Sunday. And I just wanted to put out put it out there. He's a beagle mix. Um, even though he's old, his nose he still has the nose of a beagle. So we're thinking that he may have picked up the scent and gone looking, running after the beagle. And I just want to. He was um, he left from Pooch Cove area is where he left from. We searched pretty well everywhere as we can as far as we can see right now. Um, but I was wondering, I just wanted to give you a phone number to call if anyone should happen to see him. Uh, we have posters up all through, like from Porch Cove, uh, sorry, Pooch Cove, Tor Bay, Baleen Line, all that strip of property, like all that strip of land there. So if you are listening, if your listeners are listening to this, there are posters up um, in those communities, so they'll get an idea of what he looks like. Um, I'm going to give you a number for to call if anyone happens to see him. Sure, go ahead. And that is um, 765-3727. Yep. Yep. 765-3727. So what community yeah. are you calling from, Jerry? I'm actually, I'm calling from CBS. I just, I was one of the people who went out looking for him and, and helped out there. And the owner is just uh, distraught 19 years with, you know. He's a family member. I understand entirely. Our last dog was a beagle, and uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, so if uh, th- there's also an opportunity. People have some success when they post on the Missing Pets uh, Facebook page as well. So that's yeah, a pretty active group. We've done all that. Okay, good. And actually, um, Dave has asked me when I'm finished with this to send him a copy of what I got here of the poster and he'll keep it on hand in case someone calls in there. Sounds good. So if you've seen Nico... Doing a lot of traveling for a 19-year-old, isn't he? Yeah, no kidding. So (laughs) 765-3727. Fingers crossed, Jerry. Yes, thanks very much. I appreciate you doing this for me. Take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, and, you know, speaking with uh, Grant out in Botwood, you know, it just pops into my head here now, just the difference in tone and reaction in the community of Botwood with the potential to be the hub of a uh, wind-hydrogen facility because there's a big proposal that includes uh, Botwood being exactly that, the uh, key center for that operation. Compare or contrast that to the reaction that we heard from many. Now, it's always difficult to know. 
just how many people are uh, for or against anything, including these wind hydrogen proposals on the Port of Port Peninsula, there has been some vocal opposition to it. And again, I have no earthly idea exactly what percentage of the area is in or what percentage is out. But Bottwas seems quite bullish. Even their mayor talking about it in very optimistic tones. You know, you think about what was once a very vibrant community with uh, uh, the fishery and the processing plant and over 700 people. Now the estimate says less than 100 people live in Botwood. I believe there's only a handful of children in school. So they need an economic uh, shot in the arm. And this could be exactly that. So, you know, I always thought that the issue here for many would be, it's not just the access to Crown Lands and the, the whole process. It's the firebrand that is John Risley, I think, does fuel some of the way that people have reacted to his company, World Energy GH2's proposal out in Port of Port, the Port of Port Peninsula. So if you want to take that on, because I think that conversation has kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. And I imagine in the short term, we're going to hear some decisions about moving forward or not, whether it be based on the province's uh, work that they're doing and environmental assessments and whether or not the companies have been able to raise the capital. Because in the uh, World Energy GH2's case, we're talking billions of dollars. So lots yet to be understood on that front. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Nathan. You're on the air. Hi, uh, Patty. It's nice to be on the air. I uh, love the show. Thank you. Welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Uh, well, uh, going back to one of your last callers talking about not being able to find work. Uh, I myself, I was working in Ontario for a long time uh, before the pandemic hit. Uh, I was uh, basically a, a machinist. It's called a mold maker in the automotive industry. Okay. And I decided... I heard about this windmill project and, and all that that's going on, so I decided to move to the Port of Port Peninsula. And unfortunately, due to all the protests that were going on, uh, they've had to slow that project down, and it's been really hard to find work. So I really sympathize with uh, the last caller and not being able to find work. Thankfully, I've got a good family that's able to support me. But even locally, uh, I've, I've driven forklift for 15 years, can't find a job anywhere from Stephenville to Cornerbrook. So I, I just want to let everybody know that it's, it's really frustrating. Like there, It seems like there is a big lack of work out there for uh, skilled labor in this province. Well, I tell you what, and again, I admit that, and I don't think anybody really knows exactly what percentage are all for this proposal by uh, World Energy GH2 or opposed to it, but I know one thing for sure. That region of the province could absolutely use a project coming to town to create the number of jobs we're talking about. Even in the construction phase, we're talking about a a huge number of jobs. Operationally, obviously far less, but jobs nonetheless. So I I have a funny feeling this project is going to happen. Absolutely, and I, I can't wait for it to happen because it would be a huge revitalization for Stephenville compared to, like, uh, back when the Army, like, the U.S. Army was there. And, you know, it, it could be a big boom. Like, all of these communities throughout the Port Port Peninsula could be greatly incentivized to, to create more businesses out there. And I don't understand why people are protesting it so much. And, they're like, you know, I had to leave my spot in Ontario because I was also having financial hardship. So I had to move back here with family, and it just seems like there's if it's not one stumbling block, it's another, right? Well, opposition has to be... Uh 
heard and spoken yeah. about and understood. So I think of some course. of the general is, you know, well, in mainland, they've got a water issue that they're pointing the finger of blame at that proposal. Then there's people just talk about the environmental impact of what would be an, an expansive amount of land to a company, six, well, 164 of these massive wind turbines. Like people say, well, you see the ones in Renews, the ones they're proposing out there, just the, the southern shore wind turbines pale in comparison to the size of the ones being proposed out in your area. So they'll have those concerns and access to the land that they're used to being on and all those types of things. And that's got to be understood by the government. But I have a funny feeling this project is going to happen. Now, I think it's all going to boil down to whether or not he can get the money. I think the province is probably right. going to release it and uh, give him the thumbs up. I think he's all in. I think the area, even so some people would be very quiet in their support for it because some of the folks opposed have been fairly vocal about their opposition. But I think this is going to happen. Oh, uh, definitely. It's going to happen regardless. I think even if uh, provincially, if the government changes, or even federally, if the government changes, um, I think this is already signed in ink or blood or whatever you want to call it. It's it's bound to happen because the investment is there, right? And uh, Germany wants wants the energy. They're going to go through with it if they have to pay whatever the amount of money is. And I don't blame them. Uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's a better renewable source of energy. Yeah, there are definitely concerns, and this is not my concern because it's not my business, and if there's no provincial monies, and there's lots of debates to be had about the water royalty and everything else, we're happy to take it on, but the end product and the power loss on way to market and the eventual cost to, say, for instance, in this case, Germany, to purchase this green hydrogen, there are some legitimate concerns out there, but they're not mine. They'd have to be the companies and whoever they borrow the money from to make this happen, so we can let them worry about that. I'm not too worried about that end result, but there is a big school of thought out there says if you get in there early, because this industry is absolutely still in its infancy, so in early probably means you'll be able to secure a lot of market space, and that that concept makes sense to me, but I think this is going to happen. Now, people are worried about, you know, is it 1.7 million hectares of land being populated by wind turbines? That's not going to happen. The 31 proposals, no. uh, you know, just I haven't seen them all, obviously, but I'm going to guess half of them are not viable, half of them will never be able right. to raise the money. But I do think some of the big ones are likely to happen at some point. And probably in the very near future, we're going to hear an update from the company and the province as to the status of this one. Exactly. And the thing is, is that uh, they actually have, you can probably look it up on Google or whatever. There, There is a map of all the proposed sites. Now, of course, that's exactly what they are. They're proposed. Not every one of them is going to be, you know, feasible. But at the end of the day, uh, Say for, I, I've talked to a few people around the Port of Port Peninsula, and they had said, like, oh, if, if there was an oil refinery or a fracking thing, they would be more than willing to accommodate that because a lot of them have worked in the oil sector in, in Alberta. And I tried to make the argument, well, you realize that all of the federal regulations and safety regulations that are being put in place for an oil or a fracking, um, like, uh, development, they're, they're going to have safety uh, like like environmental standards that they have to follow as well when it comes to this ammonia or, or hydrogen or whatever it is that they're going to be doing. So at the end of the day, as long as they're following the laws and keeping things relatively safe, of course there's going to be a percentage of bad things that happen. But really, at, like I said, at the end of the day, we have to take the good with the bad, right? To keep everybody employed and, and keep our, our area booming. 
Fair enough. And I mean, obviously, you're in support of, and I appreciate you making time, and hopefully you're able to get uh, gainful employment uh, sooner than later. And it would be nice. Maybe we should see if we can get Minister Parsons, uh, Dave, to give us an update of where we are on that. And there's so much other conversations happening. That would be so good. If you could do that, Patty, thank you so much, because I really want to know more about this. It's really been, like, like lid shut. Like, nobody's talking about it other than the, the people that are opposed. But I want to make it clear that uh, me and my family and, and a lot of people I know are in support of this project because we see the, the beneficial future that, that can come from this. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning, Nathan. Thanks for this. Stay in touch and good luck. Yes, thank you so much, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. You know, the concerns are concerns. I mean, we don't, can't just ignore everything that people have to say. And there is the concept of social license when it comes to these types of projects. But again, it's quite fascinating to me that other wind proposals in different parts of the province have been just very muted reaction as opposed to what we've heard in Port of Port. And if you're opposed, we can take that on as well. But then there's a bunch of issues that people point to as to the viability of the uh, product being green hydrogen in this case and the costs regarding construction and emissions associated with construction and installation of these wind turbines and there's a, a bunch of people that send me this information they're calling it information but i don't i don't think it could be verified is that the thought or the concept is out there is that it, co- it takes more energy to build a wind turbine than the turbine will ever generate in its lifespan and there is there are lots of peer-reviewed work out there and life cycle analysis that have been done uh, that says this is simply not true. They actually talk about uh, energy payback happens between three and six months, and consequently for the rest of the 25 or 30 years uh, lifespan of these uh, wind turbines of emission-free power, then the energy payback is been well understood and well documented but people continually uh, tell me that well it takes more emissions to build one than they'll ever return in form of power when it's just not true so but that is part of the opposition commentary coming whether it be just about the industry in and of itself and again if there's nothing coming out of my pocket and we do have to be very careful with crown land and we do have to get maximized return whatever that looks like and in this case they've created a water royalty the number one problem that many people have with that is that we don't get that royalty even though it's really minimal amount of money uh, when we talk about the volume of water that will be used but if there's economic opportunity here, and if John Risley has a problem with the end market being in Germany or anywhere else in the world, that's kind of their issue. And, you know, don't want to be so crassy. Well, that's their problem. But in essence, it really is. And stick with that neck of the woods for a second. Has anybody, look, I know people will roll their eyes at this and so be it, but April the 12th was an important court date to resolve a historic uh, insolvency matter associated with the Steenville Airport. That's come and gone. We were told that was the last hurdle that had to be cleared if there was going to be any future investment and or work done at the Stephenville Airport. You know the deal. The Diamond Group of Companies manufacture these uh, big drones and everything else that goes on with it. Maybe bring in, hopefully bring in some more uh, uh, aircraft and air flight, domestic flight and otherwise back to Stephenville Airport. Haven't heard a peep since, but if you have an update, that would be tremendous. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, we spoke about this story off the top of the show this morning. The fact that the Lewisport Arena will now forever be known as the Mike Austin Arena. Join us on line number one is Mike Austin's father, or line number two is Mike Austin's father, Norm. Good morning, Norm. You're on the air. 
And good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Thank you. And hearty congratulations to you and your family. So before we get into the reaction when it was formally understood and known by Mike, how did this all come to pass where they were moving towards renaming the building after your son? Uh, We found out about it approximately three weeks ago. Uh, The mayor and the deputy mayor uh, called and wanted to meet with us. So uh, they met with us and they informed us that... uh, they were thinking about renaming the stadium after Mike, and and that's the first thing we heard about it. But apparently, uh, the council had been doing some work on it, and uh, so the, they had things in place. And then they wanted to uh, run it by us to see what we thought of it. And of course, we were overjoyed. And from then on, things start moving rather quickly. And so take us to the formal announcement. Uh, what exactly went on inside the building and what was the reaction? Not only your, your family, obviously, as you're quoted, you're very, very proud, but Mike and the rest of the community, just paint a picture for us. What happened inside the, uh, the stadium at the uh, event? Yeah, sure, and how people reacted to it, because obviously I think the community is 100% uh, backing this move. So just paint a picture about the reaction that you heard and saw that night. <laughs> a lot of it <laughs> I didn't hear because I was uh, taken. Uh, I, I, we were so overwhelmed at all that, we, you know, it was almost like we were numb. <laughs> but... Uh, Mike did get a lot of uh, uh, did get a lot of applause there, and a lot of uh, people came up to him after. And on Facebook, even the next day, you know, there was hundreds and hundreds of posts that was saying congratulations, and that you know he was so deserving of it, and they couldn't have named it after a better person because you got to understand the stadium is Mike's life. Every time that those doors are open, whether it's for figure skating, minor hockey, right from the youngest uh, group to the oldest, up to senior hockey, Mike is there. Mike is there continually. He'll leave, he'll leave in the morning at 8, 8 a.m. and probably come back uh, when the hockey's over that night. Remarkable. And the stories about what Mike is like in the rink and the way he cheers on all the competitors, regardless of who they are, where they're from, very much like the whole model surrounding Special Olympics anyway. So tell us a bit more about your son. Well, Mike was born with a chromosomal uh, translocation. That's where uh, one uh, chromosome uh detaches and goes to another set of chromosomes and that left him with uh, some disabilities uh, the biggest one it would be his speech uh, Mike is very uh, hard to understand uh, when he's talking but now if you're around him for a short while you will get most of what he's saying and the other uh, disabilities are uh, basically is fine motor skills and he has some problems with his balance. So Mike have had many, many um, ups and downs medically and physically. Uh, he's been in the OR over 50 times. He has had 
two open heart surgeries. He've had three or four major stomach surgeries, and you know, then there's minor surgeries like tubes in his ears. He has a problem sometimes. His esophagus go uh, goes together, and he has to go in and go into our OR and get that stretched. So overall, he's been in there over 50 times. But you know, Mike bounces back just as, as fast as anything. And all of those issues hasn't uh, kept him from being a Special Olympian for more than a couple of decades. That's correct. Um, we started uh, going to Gander from Lewisport to, to the Special Olympics club there, the Gander Wings, in 1999. Mike started off in bowling, and he was in bowling there two or three years. Then he decided that he would like to try track and field and snowshoeing. And I think since 2001 or something, uh, he's been in track and field summertime and snowshoeing in wintertime. And, of course, you probably know the motto of the uh, Special Olympics. Uh, let me win, but if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. And that has been Mike's motto throughout life. It's a wonderful story. It really is. <laughs> and uh, this... this uh, renaming the uh, stadium was kept a secret from Mike right up until they announced it at the event uh, Monday night he didn't know why he was there <laughs> and when he heard and he realized what was going on then what he was on stage the mayor was up and had him up on stage and she asked him you know the question what do you think is there he didn't know and then she went on, and then she said, Mike, we're going to name the uh, arena after you. We're going to call it the Mike Hoskin Arena. Man, you should have seen him. You should have seen him. Well, you should have probably did on, on, on the videos. I don't I know. Have. <laughs> I have seen it. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. It's, and he came home that night. He was so hyped. It wasn't even funny. I, he was in his room and he was talking to himself until after 1, 1 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you think about it, I mean, arenas around the province that are named after athletes. I mean, Caitlin Osmond has the rink down in Marystown named after her. Mike Adams and the rec center up in Labrador. And, you yeah. know, the names on the highways, the Gujus and the Hickeys and the Roxons and right. stuff. Yeah. And now there's a Mike Austin Arena. I mean, you must be over the moon. And I'm sure, obviously, Mike is. But you, oh, your okay. entire family must be the same same. Way. We are. Yeah, we are. We are. Wow. And you know, the town of Lewisport have treated Mike. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, Mike knows everybody, and everybody knows Mike, and they they take the time of you know to go out of the way and talk to him. And where he has a speech problem, most of the people has learned now to ask him questions that will require a yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like he'll go up to Tim's, and everybody there knows him. Uh, if he go there by like he as a bike, we're about two and a half kilometers from Tim's, and he he rides that bike in the summer every day to Tim's. And he'll go up, and if there's a group of men there sitting down, they'll say, Mikey, come and join us. So if there's some women there, they'll say, Mikey, come and join us. 
Uh, it's fantastic. I always said that if we move from Lewisport, we're moving to Lewisport. <laughs> uh, Norm, I'm thrilled for all hands. And as the mayor said, uh, Mayor Christopher Freak said, it's a reflection of uh, Austin's status as the town's number one fan and a community hero. That's a mouthful. Yeah, yes, yeah. Great stuff. And in the canteen, there's a policy that Mike Austin eats free. There's a there, there's a sign there saying Mike Austin eats free. That's wonderful. Uh, I don't I don't know. I might I might just black out Mike's name and put mine there. <laughs> like you would, Norm. You gotta take some of the credit here. Listen, uh, really pleased to make time. Really pleased that you made time for the show this morning. I've enjoyed the conversation, and congratulations to you all. Okay, thank you. It's a pleasure. Take care, Norm. You have a great day. You too, sir. Bye bye. Norm Austin, his son Mike is the namesake of the Lewisport Arena, the Mike Austin Arena. How fabulous is that? Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, George is in the queue to talk about green hydrogen. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, George. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? Good, sir. Very good. Good. Uh, I've been listening, yeah, to some people about the uh, green energy project coming up in the uh, Stephenville area. Mm-hmm. Port of Port. Uh, now... It would be great for the Stephenville area, for sure, uh, with the jobs and everything else. Uh, it would also help out the airport if, uh, you know, if it goes ahead like they say do and create all these jobs. But there's only one concern that I have, and it wouldn't be the windmills, because there's apparently they seem to be windmills all over the place these days, and they don't, don't seem to be uh, doing too much damage. But my concern is is the water. Like, I've been asking questions. I haven't done much research on it. But I've been asking questions about what happens to the water after the hydrogen is, is extracted from it. Because uh, at one time, uh, one of our chemistry books, when I went to school, it was a few years back. But anyway, uh, there was a statement there that said that water, water cannot be made or destroyed. Now, uh, if they take the hydrogen out, uh, will that be destroyed or will the water be any good anymore? Or what, what happens to it? Well, it wouldn't be potable. But I don't think there's a real concern there that I've, you know, someone mentioned this to me before, but I don't think that presents any sort of environmental uh, worry. Not that I can find. Maybe it was you, George, that uh, put that question in my head. But someone did here some weeks or months ago, and I went and looked around to see if there was any concern with water after the fact, after the electrolysis process. I couldn't find anything that pointed to any concern. I I know, and other people have been telling me that but i mean if you got say a huge pond of water and you take all the you you whatever you do with it is it that pond of water still going to be there or is it any good for anything or i imagine it just ends up in the ocean but will it come back will it be would you be able to to drink it again eventually i don't know the answer to that question but i really did try to dig in and find if there was any complications associated with the uh, electrolysis itself and the separation with an electric current uh, and the Mm -hmm. consequential outcome here of green hydrogen i couldn't find anything that was of any concern nor am i sure that that water and the industrial reservoir it's coming from is drinkable in the first place Yeah, but it's still got to be good for something. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, you can use uh, water for a variety of things beyond simply drinking it. But I, to be honest with you, I couldn't find anything that referred me to, oh, this is a potential problem that we need to consider regarding water after the electro- electrolysis. So, I mean, yeah, I, I wish I knew more want, about it, but I don't. Yeah, because we, re- we don't want to get rid of our water no matter what. Uh, 
No, of course not. Uh, this is a uh, an already established industrial reservoir of water. This is not a new source that would be taking away from the water table or from a, uh, potential reservoirs for drinking water. This was, I think, the old Abitibi Reservoir Resource. So this was already used for commercial or industrial applications. So I don't think there's a whole lot more strain on the system. I think the fair concern people are pointing out is that you know, what we have to offer here is we have the land, we have the wind, and we have the water, and we have the deep sea ports in close proximity to the market. So all that being said, it makes Newfoundland and Labrador, Newfoundland in particular, an attractive option for these companies. So we just got to get as much out of it as we possibly can if these things are going to proceed. So it's hard to put a royalty on the wind. It's hard to put a royalty on yeah. the water, but we have applied a water royalty. And of course, then there's going to be concerns with how much electricity that they might be selling back to the grid and what that means for right. rate pairs with Muscar Falls and everything else. So there's still lots of unknowns yet to be concerned with. But the after-the-fact use of the water, I, there's nothing I can find that points to any concern. Mm, well, I think, you know, before we do go in, I think we should be 100% sure what happens to it because if we can't get it back, uh, not uh, lots of people at our age, but I mean, the younger generation come up, what are you going to have left to drink? Yeah, but th- I don't think this is part of drinking water uh, uh, application in the first place. It might go to that, will it? Pardon me? I said eventually it might go to that if they use up a reservoir and then that's gone. Uh, oh, uh, apparently this particular project, and we've asked these questions of the government and the proponent, that there's more water there than they're going to need for this process, for the kind of business model that they have in place. So I don't know if that's a concern. Plus, we have an abundance of drinking water here. We just oh. have problems with uh, some of the water treatment uh, equipment in many parts of the province. Like, there's still over uh, 100 boil order advisories in place, which is amazing here in Canada. Canada in 2023. So. Yeah, I know. Well, we have an abundance of it, but we said the same thing with our fishery, and looks what's happening with that. Yeah, we played an active role in beating yeah. that up. Oh, I know. <laughs> so what I need to do then is probably, you know, as important as getting on the proponent and the government here, we should probably just get a scientist on to give us yeah, this down in layman's terms. Exactly what's going on exactly. prior to green hydrogen being created, the aftermath of. And so, yeah, I'm happy to try to get someone on like that. Okay, good. That'd be good, Patty. Thanks. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for the call. Okay, buddy, right on. Thanks a million. Thanks, George. Yeah. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, I do know that there was a report that was brought forward by the International Energy Agency, the IEA. It was published just before the pandemic came around, and it was widely circulated, and I gave it a good look. But it was talking about energy demand by 2040, and they projected some 25 to 30% demand. And so what the pro- the issue that was uh, spoken about there is what would be the sources of that energy. There's a minimal amount of green energy when we talk about the entirety of the energy feed on the planet. So the thought was, as opposed to utilizing more and more coal or oil and the consequential greenhouse emissions and CO2, that with green hydrogen in particular, if utilized the way that the IEA thought it could be, it would save 800, let's see if I can remember the number, 800 something, 30 or 50 million tons of CO2 emitted annually when the that gas is produced using a fossil fuel. So there is certainly an argument to be made on the emissions front. The one area of concern, even as acknowledged by the IEA and others, is at the high production cost. Reasoned, reasoned folks are wondering whether or not this approach to decarbonization with this particular product has 
the business model associated with it. Now, like I said, the business model is kind of not our problem, is it? Uh, let's go ahead to line number three. Ryan, you're on the air. Hi, Ryan. Hey, good morning, Patty. How you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, pretty good, pretty good, Patty. Uh, thanks, sir. Thanks for having me on the shoulder. Thanks for uh, taking the time to uh, to hear some of the concerns that uh, small boat fishermen like myself are facing there with regards to uh, recruitment and retention in the fishing industry. Okay. Just, uh, I'm just going to. Uh, I'll start off by saying it was uh, everyone is everyone is pretty uh, pretty familiar now with the uh, with the challenges that we're facing in the fishing industry right now with price. So I thought it'd be a, pre- a pretty fitting time there to uh, bring up my own personal story there and just tell the story about my community here in Pity Harbor. Sure. And uh, sorry, go ahead, Patty. Well, I said sure. Let's hear the story. Yeah. Well, basically, Patty, this uh, I'm in a situation right now because I work full time outside the fishery. I'm being prevented from uh, from taking over my uh, my father's enterprise. So uh, also in Pity Harbor, we used to have one of the strongest uh, fishing committee fishing committees in the province, uh, comprised of uh, 130 fishermen, where we fought to uh, we advocated for change. And uh, my father, uncles, Tom Best, Jim Everard, all those all those guys uh, built built the fishery in, in communities like mine in the Pity Harbor. And now, basically, a few outdated and discriminative rules that the uh, Professional Fish Service Certification Board are basically destroying it. Like I said, I, uh, I'm being prevented from uh, taking on my father's enterprise, and we have one person left in our community of Pity Harbor that's under 40 and that isn't eligible to hold a fishing license. So there's, uh, there's definitely problems there that need to be addressed. What are some of the specifics that makes it extremely difficult to transfer an enterprise? Okay, I'm going to uh, I'll, I'm going to start off because uh, sometimes I'm, I'm feeling this is coming to light a lot of times. I had a lot of conversations with the uh, I can't say conversations. I had a lot of one-sided conversations with the Minister of Fisheries and the uh, Director of the Certification Certification Board on it. But before I go into detail, I'm going to give you a little bit of history on uh, on how our fishery has evolved in the uh, last 30 years, which I'm sure most of the listeners uh, know already. But basically, prior to 1992. We had a, a very competitive and lucrative cod fishery. I said that in those times, a lot of fishermen were forced to uh, were basically in fishing boats because they had to be to fish to, to quit quit school or were forced to leave school and become fishermen. So in those days of the competitive cod fishery, the uh, leaders in the industry and uh, the uh, fishermen's committee. In, Pity Harbor introduced a rule that said that a fisherman had to uh, make 75% of their income during the fishing season in order to be considered considered a fisherman. This basically kept the licenses in the hands of fishermen. People couldn't walk off the street that worked outside the fishery and spend 20 bucks in the DFO office and come down and compete with our families. But uh, as most of your listeners are aware, there was a dramatic changes in the fishery when John Crosby announced the closure of the Cobb Moratorium in July 1992. So in light of that, there was uh, in light of the cod closure, the industry started to be professionalized, and we transitioned into a crab fishery that was uh, basically based on primarily based on individual quotas. It's been allotted to all the, all these license holders and any new license holders coming in. So at the time, they realized that uh, 
fishermen were going to be able to start working out, holding full-time jobs outside the fishery to be able to sustain these enterprises. But what they uh, what they failed to uh, to accept at the time is that they still they still they kept fishermen out that worked full-time outside the fishery. So basically. At the time, they realized it was okay for fishermen, or not not okay, actually encouraged for fishermen to work outside the fishery full time to sustain their enterprises. But basically, if anyone else works out the in, work outside the industry, they're not eligible to become a fisherman. So, in simple terms, right now, I'm being prevented from uh, carrying on my father's license because I work full time outside the industry. But in actual fact, he's allowed to work full time in my job and still hold his license. Yeah, that's right. So I guess, yeah. So I guess, uh, like, like I said, we were at a rally the other day that was uh, solely based on protecting the fishing industry and around fairness and equality. So I don't know if anyone listening can think that would fall in the category of fairness and equality. If they would, I would strongly, I would strongly encourage them to look up the defini- definition of fairness and equality. And then, yeah. So it's so, a little bit. Uh, so if you were to take to me. Uh, actually Ryan I do have a few more questions about this but I'm yes, not straight yes, up against yes, the news. Do you have the time yes. to be put on hold and come back after the news and finish our conversation? Yes, Patty, I do. And I'd just like to throw out there I probably never I, I probably inherited my father's and my uh, Uncle Tom Bass fishing jeans, but I never I never inherited their jeans around a year. I guess they're in front of a camera. <laughs> well, I spoke to Tom many times, but you're doing great. So I'll put you on hold. We'll resume this conversation right after the news. Yeah, it sounds good, buddy. Okay, Thank there you. There we go. So Ryan's on hold. We'll pick that up. And, of course, right after Ryan, we'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's rejoin Ryan on three. Ryan, you're back on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, it actually worked out good because I hope it uh, hope it gave the listeners a little bit of time to uh, to contemplate what I said there. But I'll start off by saying I'm, I'm not or no one else uh, – I don't think anyone else in, in situations like ours are recommending open up the industry to just anyone. What we're recommending is open up to open up the industry to anyone that's willing to spend five years in an apprenticeship program and obtain their level two based on fair and equal rules that are applied equally to everyone. Not one not ones that discriminate against one and uh, basically kiss one and kick another. When you look at issues regarding the traditional fishery and agriculture, we know the age, the average age of people that are executing the fishery is advancing year over year. So to put in hurdles that keeps young blood out just makes zero sense to me. It's counterproductive. Uh, A specific question for you, though. You're unable to take it over because you're working full-time outside the industry. So would your plan be to be working full-time in the fishing enterprise, or would you be one of those dry land captains, or what's the thought? No, Patty, there's actually owner-operator policies in place there are, yeah. that, that prevent drawline captains. There's only a, a select few of uh, what we what the uh, I'll refer refer what I refer to as shore skippers in the province. Yeah. They're actually allowed to enter they're actually allowed to work full time. They can hold my job, work full time and operate their uh, their vessels from uh, from land and office or wherever they wherever they choose wherever they choose to. But no, Patty, my intentions would never be just to put it in perspective or put it into relative terms, last year at our historical high, we had a we had a uh, quota that was worth ninety thousand dollars. So the uh, the minister of fisheries he's basically expecting expecting three people on on, on board our boat that work full time outside the fishery to take a four month layoff for two summers in a row to become eligible at events 
and be a captain that can work full time outside the, outside the industry for twelve months a year. So it's uh, it, like you said, it's it's very very counterintuitive. It's uh, there's years there's years. I'm, again, I'm going to go back to something now that I found very interesting. I sat down last week and I listened to an open line interview where my uncle Tom Best sat on a panel with, on a panel with you guys, and he was actually sat on a panel with open line with 24 years experience fishing, and uh, fellas like Vic Young would call him looking for information, and and I found it very interesting. I'm 24 years fishing, and I spent the whole winter emailing our fishery minister and the director of the Professional Fish Harvesters Certification Board over something that is as plain as the nose on our faces. And I guess the other interesting fact is when I was listening to that interview, all my Uncle Tom uh, kept saying was about the, uh, the rules and regulations that our government deployed at the VOD fishermen. Well, I don't think there's, a, there's any better example of this that's what's, what's happening right now. I'm basically prevented from taking over an enterprise for doing exactly what every one of these level twos, the 2,000 of them, are able to do. Mark say he need to protect them, but in actual reality, they have the opportunity to go and do exactly what I'm doing, but I don't have the opportunity to become one of them. Yeah, and you mentioned Vic Young, who, of course, was at the helm of uh, Fisheries Product International, of FPI, it's just so people know what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, okay, so, yeah. I mean... Who makes these rules? Is this the Department of Fisheries and Oceans? Is it a provincial rule? Or who actually establishes this, and who can change it? So, Patty, I'm going to give you the answer that I got from the Minister of Fisheries on this. He said that these rules were developed 30 years ago, and a lot of hard work and effort went into developing them at the time with leaders in the industry, such as our own Pity Harbor Co-op and the members of the FFAW. So just... uh, the other counterintuitive thing, I've talked to members at FFAW, or the uh, Inshore Council at FFAW, and they are all in full support of opening up an avenue for people like me to enter the fishery. And so are the Pity Harbor Co-op. They recognize that, it, that the fishery has dramatically changed, but the director of the certification board and the uh, minister of fisheries are not willing to accept it. If they're getting paid by the hour to answer my emails or to read my emails, they stand to make more from reading my emails than I do from our fishing enterprise this summer. Amazing stuff. So if you were able to, if all of a sudden they magically cleared these hurdles, which should be addressed, and we have to understand why why they remain in place 30 years later, I mean, do you have a license? Do you have, does the enterprise have a license, have a quota, have anything other than the boat? Excuse me, Patty. I didn't. Uh, I didn't quite uh, comprehend. So l- let's just say they do away with this hurdle and allow you to take over the enterprise. Yeah. Do you start from scratch with simply the vessel? Like, do you have licenses in place, or how does that look or work today? <laughs> well, Patty, like, like I like it is like it is told you. Yes, uh, my my father have a license. He have a vessel, and I'm basically in a situation where I'm going to be lucky enough to inherit that. And these are the challenges I'm facing. So where does the young fella? up on the northeast coast that's fishing with his old man in a 22-foot speedboat, where, where does he stand? So he doesn't stand a chance. I mean, our, our community, the, uh, the uh, director of the certification board and the minister of fisheries, all agree that they don't think our community is a uh, good example of rural, rural Newfoundland. I beg to differ. We are the best example that, that, that there is. We are a community that is comprised strictly of vessels under 40-foot length. That is rural Newfoundland right there. They, they tend, when they're making their decisions, they, de- tend, they tend to lean them towards 
looking at him from the perspective of this guy that's fortunate enough and lucky enough to own this 90-foot enterprise. Don't get me wrong, they are great people too, and they had they made huge, huge investments. The same thing I had the opportunity to do and choose not to. But they also had the opportunity to do exactly what I do as well. So to me, that's fairness and equality. We can't keep knocking each other down and expect everyone to get ahead. Amazing stuff. So I suppose next time we have opportunity to speak with people in positions of authority, whether it be at the union or the department itself, federally or provincially, I guess we'll have to tackle this because it just kind of makes zero sense at all. Yeah, we know no the numbers, fighting. we see the ages, and we're heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, and uh, in actual fact, the, uh, the, uh, the reports that were released to the government from the certification board, actually, they're, they're, they say in their, in their own in their own words that they, 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 they see these challenges. They're supposed to be looking for people in their program. Right now, they committed to the provincial government to look for people in their program that are eligible to events from apprentice to level one to level two to address my exact concerns. But they, all they want to do, they want to look, they want, they want to keep beating around efficient season and these words full-time and part-time that disappeared or should have disappeared when the program was introduced. People can't walk into a DFO office anymore and pick up a license and buy, and buy a uh, buying enterprise. They need to spend five years in an apprenticeship program and obtain all the safety credentials that come along with it before they can buy an enterprise. So it's, it's absolutely, it totally lacks log- logic and common sense. Successful industries do not run their businesses like that. If I if I told if I told my boss that I needed a four month layoff, he will replace me the next day. That's that's not how successful industries are run. We produce some of the best tradesmen in the world, world class tradesmen. These are people that belong in fishing boats. Many of them are in fishing boats as well, and yet we're having to we're having to demonstrate every year to get our stamps out of our fishing boats. If you had successful leadership. You wouldn't need to do that, and don't don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean this in any dis- disrespect to union leadership or or anything else. There's just a few bad apples that are ruining it for everybody. I don't. I know uh, we all develop biases. I have a bias right now that this, these rules are destroying our they're destroying our community. The director of the board have a bias because he spent the last 26 years trying to enforce them. But in the sad reality, the guy that the guy that he's probably sitting down with talking to about this, he probably spent his life prior to the moratorium fighting to keep people out that worked outside the fishery. So he have a bias as well. So this is a new age, a new fish, new fishery. People ain't forced in fishing boats anymore. We, we are all highly educated individuals. So we, we need to all come together and adapt with the times. If we all come together and adapt with the times, I can guarantee you, we will not be out fighting for unemployment in 10 years. All makes sense to me. So there's no one entity that can unilaterally make these changes. Uh, yes, Patty, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of how, how these changes are made, or from my perspective, how they were changed. I uh, sat with the Professional Harvest, or the uh, Professional Fish Harvester Certification Board, in uh, 2008, when they when they took my status for me, because at that time you weren't allowed to enter a fishing boat if you work full time outside the fishery. The, fi- the, the the skipper of the boat he could work full time outside the industry in any job he chose, but you weren't allowed to enter a fishing boat if you worked outside the industry. So basically, because I was making fifteen thousand dollars a summer from the time I was 
17 to the time I was 22 or 23. So basically my only option was to go find work elsewhere. So I jumped on a flight and went to Alberta as any, any person that's going to be successful would or that wants to be successful would. And therefore the certification board basically robbed my status on me. So I told them at the time that this, this rule don't, don't work in communities like mine. It might work great in large communities where people are successful enough to have large vessels and they, they invested enough, but it don't work for communities like mine. So in 2020, to address crewing issues, they finally removed rule and they started letting people like me back into the system. So essentially, we just boost. I start paying $75 to the uh, certification board every year. I boost at their numbers, so it's a win for them. I completed all the requirements. I, I, I can operate a boat up to uh, up to 100 ton anywhere inside the 200-mile limit, and I achieved 120 credits in the program, but yet I'm not allowed to, oper- to operate an 11-ton boat inside 25. So I don't know if any listeners can make sense of that either, but uh, to me, that's just another example of how, how we totally lack logic. They say they want it to, they're afraid to open it up because they're afraid big business are going to take over the fishery. You better open your eyes. Big business has already taken over our fishery. By opening it up, big business ain't spending five years in an apprenticeship program and going to the Marine Institute to get a fishing master's degree to buy a license. All they're going to do is what they've been doing this past 26 years. They're going to pick one of these level twos that are already in the system, and they're going to get they're, they're going to get them to uh, they're going to buy a license. They're going to get them to operate for them. That's that's the avenue. That that's why our industry is in the state it's in. So it's really counterintuitive because if I'm not la- allowed to take over our license, there's going to be a phone call, and somebody is going to have to get a financial arrangement. There's no bank. There's no bank giving this 21 year old level two out there a loan for $500,000 to come buy out our enterprise, he's going to be forced to go to, more than likely, one of the larger processors, and they're going to back him. And that's that's not a knock against large processors. They are great guys, too. They're just taking advantage of rules that are that are provincial government they're making for them. Yeah. So basically, and be- anyway, I, I probably got off track there a little bit, Patty, but basically, okay. when, when, when you asked me about the rule, yeah, in 2020... That rule, the rule was lifted for people like me and let me back in. That was the certification board done that itself in 2020. That wasn't signed off until the minister to 2022. So this really should have went away the first time I brought it up. When I brought this up six months ago, this should have went away then. They could have quietly removed that. People cannot just step into a fishing boat and take over the fishery. They need to spend five years in the apprenticeship program first. Let us all do it on a set of, a set of rules that's fair and equal to everyone. So... What their answer is, is there's an appeal process. So, yes, Ryan Everard could slip through the cracks in their appeal process, but then two years down the road, when I'm level two certified and I go back to work on my full-time job outside the fishery, and one of these uh, one of these people that just come in from the Ukraine wants to wants to enter a fishing boat, and I, I'm going to have to force him or force them, force them to comply with a fishing season that hasn't applied to, 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 uh, to fishermen since 1997. So it absolutely lacks logic and common sense. How could I? How can I expect? Or if I'm saying I promote fairness and equality, how could I say it's okay for me as a skipper to work full time in another job, but it's not okay for my crew member to do the same thing? Ryan, it's fascinating conversation, uh, troubling or whatever the right word is at, at the same time. I appreciate this this morning. Thank you. Yeah, Patty. Uh, again, if the Minister of Tourism is listening, maybe he will. Uh, he, maybe he will be able to pick some sense into this because. The tourism in Pity Harbor solely depends on people coming down to look at fishing boats. Fish and chips is fish and chips, and ice cream is an ice cream. They come down to look at fishing boats. 
Thanks for this, Ryan. Stay in touch. Thank you, buddy. You're welcome. Have Take a good care. day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Kayla's there to talk about Go Boss. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Kayla. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. And how are you this morning? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. How about you? you re- I'm doing fine. Do you remember me from a couple of months ago when my mom and I were living in an apartment building? I was sworn that called in about Teddy. Oh, yes, I remember that with your dog. What happened after? We finally got in housing in January. Terrific. So it's working out. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it is working out. I thought I'd let you know, and, I'm, and Teddy is doing well. What kind of family? Uh, is it close by so you can see the dog? No, we, we got Teddy in the house with us. Oh, you got it figured out in your own house. Oh, great. So when we got a house and we got Teddy back, so that's perfect. But what I'm calling in about is Go Bus. Okay. Last night, I had Special Olympics. Now, you know what Special Olympics is, right? Mm-hmm, I do so. My booking time was between 5.30 and 6. They never got there till 6.30. Bowling starts at 6.30, but luckily I was the first one. Now, I understand the drivers have these schedules that they got to follow, and sometimes they got to change, change up their – sometimes they got to, you know, change up their schedules because if they're out in another part of town – they go get what whoever they're closest to and if they had more clients like me that respect them everything would be good because i love the drivers and i just want to say if there's any drivers listening they're doing a good job and they and they should deserve customers like me that respect them. So what happened? You saw people disrespecting the drivers or what exactly is going on? Well, there are, there's always people that's uh, out there that gets crooked with the drivers and I don't like that because yes, I got my favorite drivers and I don't like to see them getting crooked with them. Fair enough. Yeah, but if they were, if the, all the clients were like me, nice, calm, and stuff, then everything would be fine. I don't mind go bus being late. Even if I'm late for my activities, I will call, I will let someone know from Special Olympics if I'm going to be late. Or when I, and I'm in Easter Seals too, but I'm not allowed there for they're trying to get me back. Put it that way. Not going to get into details about that. But, I mean, I will call if I'm late for Easter Seals activities. I will call in Easter Seals and let them know. Go Bus is running behind. And I'm the sweetest client all the drivers got. Yeah. I bet you are. Kayla, I have, a, I have a question for you, though. There was concerns about the new booking system for GoBus, and it wasn't working for many. Has it been smoothed out here? What? Say that again? There was a lot of people who had a problem with the new booking system for GoBus, and it just wasn't working for so many of their clients. Has anything changed with the booking system recently to make it better? Mm, I don't know. Okay. Because I... It's okay, I think, but what I think, 
I I don't know what I think, but I think that if more clients were like me and just waited patiently and not get rude, um, I think that every I think that the drivers would not be getting frustrated with their jobs. They are good drivers, and they and they deserve customers like me. Well, I'm sure you are a very sweet and accommodating and understanding passenger. For oh yeah, and sure. then I'm, good. I'm getting on, and then I'm getting on some of my favorite drivers' buses singing "Baby Shark," <laughs> and I'll tell you that gets stuck in their head. <laughs> no doubt it does. And then I I got autism, like I mentioned before, and I like Dora, and I take Dora a lot, and the drivers don't mind because it calms me down. Kayla, what activities are are you involved with with Special Olympics? Bowling, five pin bowling on Wednesday night. Okay. And then ten pin bowling on Thursday nights. Do you prefer one or the other? Uh, I like them both. And then I after ten pin bowling Wednesday nights, I also the hub decided to get some of their members out bowling, so. I just bowling with the hub too after Special Olympics on Thursday night. Are you better at five pin or ten pin? I don't know, but I just like bowling and stuff. Good. And I also, when I'm able to go back to Easter Seals, I'll go back to bocce and stuff because I go to Easter Seals as well. That's a great facility up there, yeah, and the new park is going to be awesome. Oh, yeah. And the drivers uh, and go-bus drivers should deserve better clients like me that respect them. And because they're all sweet drivers, they're trying to do their best. Kayla, I'm glad you called with a happy update regarding your dog. And uh, good luck with your Special Olympics, with your bowling, and when you get back to the bocce. And thanks very much for calling the show this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. There you go, Kayla. Sweet. All right. Uh, today might be a good day to get on the program in the last half hour. Or so, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709 273 5211. Elsewhere, toll free long distance 1 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5 30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Just speaking to a story that we just heard from Jolene Grimes on the VOCM News is that, I guess now, former RNC officer, I suppose, or maybe there's still an official process. People don't like to hear the word constable associated with Douglas Snellgrove, given the fact that we know now, convicted rapist, next step could be with the Supreme Court of Canada for one final appeal. Seems unlikely the Supreme Court of Canada gets upwards of 800 uh, cases apply to them to see if they'll take it on. And I think they take about 80 per year. Whether or not this one uh, qualifies as in the national interest remains to be seen, but it seems unlikely at this moment in time. And so now Snellgrove, convicted rapist, has uh, put himself forward to the RNC and he's now in prison. So inevitably there's going to be a long four years ahead of him or whatever time serve he serves on this particular conviction. And there's a story today about the survivor. Some people refer to as the victim of this sexual assault. And, of course, known province-wide as Jane Doe. 
talking about she's grateful that it's come to a close, but it's been a long, the, the three trials span six years. It's been eight years since the uh, crime was committed. And at one point, apparently, Jane Doe, or throughout the course of this uh, eight years, had even considered uh, death by suicide. So it's been an extraordinarily long road for her. The community support has been very, uh, she's, gra- she's grateful for the community support that she's received, but it's just a remarkable story that has been years in the making. I remarkably get people who send me emails in particular talking about the fact that it's been a witch hunt or something, so to speak, or it's been unfair treatment of uh, Snellgrove for what happened when I, I can't wrap my mind around that particular thought process or that rationale. But now, at least for now, it's over. Well, Snellgrove is now in prison. And as many people would think, exactly where he belongs for this particular conviction for the crime committed, the investigation and the court proceedings. So we'll, I, we'll see now if the Supreme Court takes it on. But uh, Snellgrove brought in a legal duo from uh, Toronto for this last go-round and appeal. And the appeals court threw it out. Say there was no there was no issue with him not being at pre-sentence, uh, trial, pre-trial conferences and whatnot because he signed a waiver saying his lawyers could represent him at the pre-trial conferences. The judge also said, or the appeals court, court also said the judges made no errors when instructing the jury and that was something regarding the concept of willful blindness but anyway that story is where it is also in the news remember it wasn't that long ago where there was a tragic accident on the highway or a single vehicle crashed and there were some accusations or questions surrounding whether or not an rcmp officer played a role in that crash it was out by cornerbrook and so the serious incident response team took a look at it, and although they say it does not fall within the CERT NL mandate, they did say that there's no the RCMP officer did not contribute to the car crash that killed the young woman. So there was a fellow who was arrested, James Boone, 39 years old, arrested the day of the crash, appeared in court, uh, charges of dangerous operation causing death, flight from pre- police, prohibited driving, amongst other various charges, but the RCMP officer in question here uh, has been cleared of any wrongdoing by cert. They went on to say that the vehicle, in an interest of public safety, the officer chose not to pursue the vehicle because we know the risks associated with these high-speed chases that was once the go-to process for the RCMP or the RNC or law enforcement across the country is that we would hear stories of these chases and far too often they ended in tragic circumstances, which is now why that is no longer the case. They will not uh, engage in these high-speed chases for all the obvious reasons. Okay, people asking questions, and I'm not really 100% sure what the question means, but it's regarding the relationship between Muskrat Falls, when it's ever finally commissioned, and we know that the 900-megawatt test, which will be the be-all and end-all, doesn't happen until next winter, asking the relationship between Muskrat and any of these wind projects, and whether or not Muskrat Falls power could be used in the process of electrolysis and what have you. I don't think there's enough power coming from Muskrat to satisfy all these proposals, even maybe just even one at World Energy GH2. What is the capacity being generated by these 164 wind turbines? And remember, that's only phase one. They've got three phases that have been part of the consideration for their full-on business model. So I don't think there's a relationship beyond the fact that if they produce more power than they need for the process, then there's the possibility to sell it back to the grid. At what cost or what price? We have no idea at this moment in time. I do think we have confirmed some time with Minister Parsons tomorrow to break down some of these looming questions, but I don't think Muskrat can play much of a role in uh, offering the generation the electricity required for the process. And then, of course, is the whole concept of ammonia. So 
green ammonia is being used as an energy carrier, basically because it has a high storage density. So there's that's the choice there. So it liquefies at minus 33 degrees Celsius, I'm told, or what I've read in the past. Contains 1.7 times more hydrogen per cubic meter than liquefied hydrogen. So that's the role ammonia plays. And I don't know how much power is required at that ammonia facility because that will indeed be part of this proposal. And I think all proposals that include green hydrogen because that has been the energy carrier of choice, being ammonia. So... The relationship with Muskrat and these proposals, I don't think there's much because we don't know how many will ever see the light of day. I do think we will see some of these greenlit. Remains to be seen whether or not the proponents are going to be able to raise the capital required. Because just remember, I think the number we're using for World Energy GH2 is somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to $14 billion. Will the market see green hydrogen as a viable uh, transition fuel, maybe. I'm not a lender, and I'm certainly not involved that le- level of business. But, you know, there is a high production cost, and I think there are some d- fairly healthy debates. And it's not about cynicism or about skepticism. It's about reality and some of the debates that will be taken on here. If the Germans are willing to pay whatever the end cost is, then good for them and good for whoever's selling to the Germans. But I think that's one of the concerns that will be evaluated at the lending level because there are several different uh, sources of energy, some that we understand, whether it be wind and solar, and the costs have come down dramatically on all. And, you know, whether or not there's a market or an appetite for more and more renewables, which I think there is, I think every single report that's ever been written about this issue in the last number of decades says there's got to be some move on, whether it be with natural gas or with green hydrogen or whatever supplemental energy can be put in place. And I know green only constitutes somewhere in the neighborhood of three maybe 5% of the world's energy consumption at this moment. And I don't think anyone's suggesting that it will be at some point 100%. There will be some industrial applications that we haven't yet figured out any technology to replace fossil fuels. There was some talk about one application that is in its infancy but looks very hopeful as it regards to steel manufacturing, which requires massive energy. So that's some of the understanding I have between muskrat and these wind projects and whether or not we'll see them and hopefully if you'd like to pepper my head with some questions that you think would be appropriate to put forward to minister parsons tomorrow pretty sure they're going to be able to make time for us he's currently traveling back from the uk and there was i think some encouraging news coming from that particular conference about opportunities especially in the mining sector between this province and the uk We talk about getting out in front of things and being first out of the gate and getting involved in the uh, early stages of green hydrogen. The same can be said for the incredible push that's being made with these rare earth minerals and critical minerals. And we have them in droves, not only in this province, but in this country. So there's going to be a real rush for foreign investment to come to our shores to get at this. So that's where I think the massive opportunities lie for us. And of course, that is an economic opportunity. We'll always have to factor in what the environmental impact will be. But that's just a part of the equation. Some people will lean in full on one area or another. It'll be about jobs and royalties and expansion of the tax base. And others will focus keenly on environmental impact of expanding mines, like they're doing currently in Labrador, going from uh, mining from the top side, going underground. So there are going to be massive opportunities here for this province, economically speaking, on that front. Let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Here in some pretty 
vociferous pushback and condemnation of the city of Mount Pearl, who at the 11th hour decided that they were not going to be uh, joining forces with Paradise, CBS, and the city of St. John's for the creation of this uh, regional economic development agency. You know, the cooperation makes all the sense in the world to me. We're hoping to speak with, you know, all three mayors, if they're willing, at some moment in time in the near future to talk about the whys for this partnership and what they realistically think can come out of this. Because there are strength in numbers when we uh, talk about this type of collaboration and opportunity. And then then the cost sharing is interesting. You know, the city of St. John's will be picking up 70% of the financial cost to create this agency and do the work that it will do. And hopefully, speaking as someone who lives in this part of the province, hopefully they have great success. All right, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go to line number one. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Oh, good. Thank you. Uh, well, I was going to talk about uh, the announcement of the recent alliance between uh, St. John's Paradise and uh, CBS sure. for the economic uh, 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 input for those cities and how they're collaborating together and working together. And you know something? I think that is a very, very good idea. And I think uh, that should expand across the province. I think all communities should be start to get together and, and work together. And at the end of the day, I think we'll prosper more than ever. And I think, I think that's a step in the right direction. I think so, too. You know, I think we've only kind of scratched the surface with exactly what these partnerships mean and what they look like. But hopefully in the next uh, little while, we'll be able to get on one of the mayors or all of the mayors to talk about exactly how this is going to work. Because it's fine to say you're going to partner up, but what exactly does that mean? And, you know, what are they focusing in on? What are they trying to chase? I think it's different when you talk about this particular collaboration or the creation of this regional economic development agency because they've got some pretty serious horsepower in population base, tax base, and what have you. I wonder how you could replicate that in other maybe smaller and more sparsely populated parts of the province, because there would be distinctly two different things, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying there, but I think if you, uh, if all communities across Newfoundland and Labrador uh, followed the same format as uh, St. John's Paradise and CBS, I, I, I said this, that stuff all along, like uh, when everybody works together, we'll all prosper rather than communities working against each other because we're all in the same boat. So if you got all small rural communities uh, together and, and and they get the same objective, in the long run, you, you've got a good population base. You put all the small into one big pot. And I, I think at the end of the, at the, end of the day, is a, is a win-win for all, like all communities, like, say, Gander, Clarenville, every community in this island, small, medium-sized, big, or whatever the case may be, um, I think this, uh, I think they're on the right track in what they came up with. I, I totally agree with it. Now, I'm not sure of the details behind the scenes, but to me, it's a, a stepping stone in the right direction. Yeah, I have no argument coming here. And I think even if you just talk about uh, baby steps, right? Like there's some areas of cooperation that have been satisfied in different parts of the province, whether it be with waste management, you know, where if you can achieve savings, because if it's just a matter of getting the waste or the garbage picked up, if you can do it differently with joining forces, maybe get uh, better contractual relationships, fine. Up in Lab City, Wabush, if they can ever figure out how they can co-finance, 
China. That's the uh, Mike Adams Recreational Complex. You know, little things to begin the areas of cooperation. And when you see that it is working and it's costing the taxpayers less to get a bigger bank for their buck, maybe then the next steps will be taken. And what they are is probably different from one region or another. But absolutely, that's, uh, that's where we're headed. Yeah, and exactly, Patty. And I agree with you. Take baby steps, and that was a good example what you just given there. Or even like say uh, road repairs or whatever. So if everybody form together and generate opportunities for income wise, we're putting burden on taxpayers. I mean, it's like domino effects. Uh, to me, it's win-win in general. And be nice to get the mayors on of uh, uh, CBS and Paradise and St. John's and and see what the details are, but. In my opinion, is a stepping stone in the right direction. Yeah, I've got no uh, argument back against that. And, you know, it would be nice to get uh, an update from the minister responsible at this time, Crystal Lynn Howell, about what regionalization looks like. And I know there's lots of people in lots of different communities mm-hmm. in the province have no time or patience for it, but I don't think we've done a very good job spelling out what it actually will look like. Because, yeah. you know, the argument is, from an LSD in particular, is that I'm in no mood to pay more taxes to get no, mo- no additional services. When it says quite clearly in the roadmap that it doesn't have to mean you're going to pay more tax. So I, I think the, the minister, her department, and others need to give us a bit more understanding about what they're actually talking about. Because that's the immediate pushback, because I'm not uh, paying more for less or paying more for no additional services. So fair enough. We've got to figure that out. Yeah, no, no, you're exactly right, and Patty, and we haven't heard much on it. We heard about regionalization or whatever the case may be, but we haven't heard no more on it and, and what the details and the format, how it's going to work. I know in other provinces they have, like, counties or whatever, and that seems like to work better and how we're doing it here. But, uh, but yeah, it'd be nice to get her on, on your show and, and discuss all this as well and uh, see where it's all uh, happening. But, uh, but I think, uh, uh, like, way the cost of living is now for towns, people, uh, costs is rising all the time. Uh, we're all going to have to work together and, and come up with more efficiencies and, and get uh, better value for our dollars, no doubt about it. Fair enough. Appreciate this, Daryl. Okay, great. Thanks for having me on the show, Patty. All the best to you and staff at VOCM and your listening audience. Take good care of yourself. All right, you as well. Thank you. Mm Bye-bye. Yeah, that was maybe a bit quick. Yeah, so those regional economic development boards that were once peppered across the province and they went away, I can't remember or can't recall the argument as to why they were no longer useful. And, of course, and big thanks to Michael, uh, who's got a massive scientific brain, uh, regarding what's the leftover product after the project or the process of electrolysis takes place and hydrogen is separated via an electric current from the water, all that remains is vapor. There's nothing to be left. There's no emissions, no pollution, no nothing. So that's a very environmentally friendly way to create that particular fuel source. So there's nothing left over. It's vapor for the most part. So those concerns voiced by that particular caller have been uh, alleviated by the scientific giants who are uh, wise are, are chirping me here this morning. And fair enough. Sometimes I'll admit my mind is so boggled navigating one issue to the next that when I miss stuff, listen, that, that's what makes uh, the show really, well, pardon me, the interaction with the listener helpful is that they're willing to uh, fill in the gaps or the blanks or the shortcomings or the mistakes that are made on air by me or anyone else. So be it. 
because if anyone thinks they have all the answers then they are sorely mistaken which i think is something that you know we probably got to try to include a little bit more and more into our political discourse is that i don't really care who you support as an individual politician or a political party but we have found ourselves for far too many voters in this country is that you really do think your guy, your girl, your side has it all figured out on the other side or a collection of morons with no idea about public policy, no idea about how to execute, no idea about what the general public really needs, no idea about the folks falling through the cracks. But the reality is no such party, no such politician exists. They simply do not. So I know that it's very much a zero-sum game. It's all in. We have to win so that you have to lose. But if we are thinking that there's some of the good ideas that can be utilized or worked on or massaged aren't coming from all sides of the political spectrum, we're just kind of kidding ourselves because we've got a lot of voters that that's their position these days is their party has only uh, only full of good ideas and good people and everybody else should not be considered should not be listened to and don't know what they're talking about when in fact there's a bit of column a b and c from the three major parties and independents and uh, members even of the party quebecois or others some of their ideas just make sense so you know, we've got to bring that back into a bit more of how we discuss politics and the upsides of one individual, one party or another, because they're fallible, every one of them. Even though as a staunch supporter of one or the other, you might not want to hear that or include that in our political debates and discourse, but that's just where we are. Anyway, let's see what's shaking down the Twitter. Lots of good information coming from folks who know much more about, for instance, the uh, concept of green hydrogen and the upside or what have you. We try to read and understand as much as we can, but we only have so much mental capacity for the issues that we try to navigate on a daily basis so when you have the info when you have the insight thank you very much for sharing and you can always do it on twitter we're vosim open line follow us there a lot of it comes in via email some interesting ones today interesting questions being posed most of which we try to if we don't have the answers we try to collect the data we try to collect the information we make every attempt to uh, verify it and then we share it back with you whether it be in email responses and or right here live on the program if you are someone who sends emails I do my level best to reply to as many as humanly possible throughout the course of a day. Can't get to them all. The volume of email is really quite something on some days, depending on what the topics are that are being discussed. But if you don't get a reply, if you just want to resend it so that it gets back at the top of my list so I can give it some consideration, you can do exactly that. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.